Yo, what's up guys and gals? This episode of Gravity Lab Radio is brought to you by Performance Designs. Performance Designs recently hosted the Deland Air Show. This is the second episode in that series. And uh, one of my favorite things about Performance Designs is the range of canopies they have. You don't know what canopy you want. You don't know what canopy you like. You hear all sorts of different words from different people. Figure it out for yourself. Go to performancedesigns.com slash compare four. That's the number four. Or you can just go to performancedesigns.com and in the info center tab, you'll find the compare four program. The compare four, it talks about their uh, four of their most popular mains, the Pulse, Saber 2, Storm, and Spectre. And these are the wings the majority of the jumpers you know are going to be flying. You hear about other things like Valkyries and Velocities, and, and we'll talk about those another day. But those four canopies, how do they open? What do you think of opening characteristics? What's the recovery arc like? The Compare 4 program is a really great little part of their website. You can go to uh, down the screen and look at openings, and it's going to tell you a little bit about openings, and then a video comparing the four openings, showing video of the openings, but also having the guys and gals from Performance Designs talking you through a little bit and giving you an explanation of the differences between those opening characteristics. They also have recovery arc videos for that, and each section has a little bit of a uh, chart showing you, in this example, the shortest to longest recovery arc of each canopy. It shows the trim, speed range, the dynamic landing range, flare timing. It doesn't matter what your questions are. Most of your answers are going to be there. Go to performancedesigns.com, compare for That is the number four, and you'll get all the information and, and uh, questions answered yourself. From there, you can hit up Kyle in the uh, PD, excuse me, yeah, Kyle, sorry about that, Kyle. Kyle in the uh, PD demo department, He uh, there is a link there, and you can get this demo to you for 50 bucks. That's for a couple weekends. It comes with a return label. Go to performancedesigns.com, compare for it, and find out what canopy is best for you. This next guest is, uh, man, we had a great time in Deland. It was unbelievable. It was crazy. It, um, been home for uh, not quite a week yet, and my mind is still absolutely blown at the people we got to listen to and, and the things they said. John LeBlanc is the Vice President of Performance Designs. He has been with the company for a very long time and uh, one of the more entertaining and interesting sit-downs I've had. We started a little bit about skydiving and John it tells a story. It is really great. And we move into a little bit of, uh, you'll hear Nick call it hippy-dippy bullshit. And if you know us, kind of things we like to uh, talk about. Guys and gals, enjoy John I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You are listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? Gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, we are live. We have come to the land, and one of the guests I've been looking forward to the most is Mr. John LeBlanc. Buddy, how have you been? I've been great. How have been you? I have been good. I will tell you, uh, I, the reason I've been the most excited about you, and we actually talked a little bit about this before we started recording, is so many people look up to their heroes, their mentors, or idols, and they have this unrealistic view of who you are. And the first time I met you, first of all, I came to introduce myself to you, and you were like, I know who you are. You're DJ. And I'm like, well, well, hold on a second. We were at PIA, and I looked down to make sure my name badge, it was backwards because I don't wear it so people can see it, so I know who's actually cheating or not. 
And I, I was blown away the, in honor that you actually had any idea who I was, but then very quickly found you were one of the more down-to-earth, humble people. You're super laid back, and I love that about you. Two years later, PIA once again, I wanted to just say hi, and you and I sat and kicked back. This was in Dallas last year for about 30 minutes. So the, the big purpose we start this show, guys and gals, the big reason we did this is for us to get to know our heroes, for us to get to know our, know our mentors. And I mean, that's the skydiving community. And, and guys and gals, I think you will enjoy one of the most down-to-earth skydivers I've met in a long time, Mr. John LeBlanc. So, Nick, what you got, buddy? <laughs> uh, man, it's, it's so great. It's been such a weird week for us because we've had a really great collection of guests, people who uh, usually when we have big, bigger names in the skydiving industry, it's people who just might be in Houston for whatever reason, and we get to grab them. And so shows like this ha have happened where we have popular people, but they're really spaced out. And so it's just I just feel like we've been spoiled all week having, uh, having such great people on here. And uh, the, first, the first bit of, uh, I mean, I've seen your, your face around, but the, the first thing I really listened to of you, of you speaking was at the British Parachute Association, I think a presentation you made in 2015. And even hearing you talk for an hour totally uh, realigned my thoughts of uh, everything I knew about parachutes and why they were built the way that they're built. Which, uh, which talk was that? Uh, well, the, the f I think the first one was uh, Path of uh, The Path of Progression, which uh, was like, oh, that makes, like, it just made... Uh, a lot more sense to me about you know me trying to describe why I fly what I fly or why other people might be interested in, in these different wings, and then digging into I think the next thing was the uh, PD had you on for a hard openings discussion, which I thought was was super interesting. Mm, cool. And you just as we sat down here, you also described your uh, enjoyment of just kind of dropping little bits of knowledge when you're at a drop zone and seeing how it uh, how it changes people's minds. Do you, do you have a favorite bit of knowledge to drop that really rearranges someone's brains around parachutes? I, I don't think of it as knowledge. Uh, I think of it as, as um, there, there are, we all have blind spots, and, and there's some real jewels in there, but we don't know they're there because that's why they're blind spots. Mm -hmm. And I, I think of it more of an awareness thing than a knowledge thing. A knowledge thing is, in today's day and age, very often kind of put into this category called a fact, a collection of facts, and people feel smart because they have all these facts. And um, skydiving is a really unusual place to have these facts. There are not many hard and fast facts. You know, if you leave an airplane and you do nothing else and you don't have any electronic devices, you're not going to live. That's a fact. And beyond that, it starts getting really blurred. We have beliefs more than facts. And some of our beliefs about skydiving, they are subject to interpretation and misinterpretation. And so I've, I've been jumping for a while, not as long as, as, as Mr. Booth, but I've, I've been here long enough to have seen a long line of things that we firmly believed were, to, were true. This is the way you do this. And then at a certain point, somebody boldly says, that doesn't work. And then other people go, really? Huh. And now they're in this place, this nothingness place where that blind spot is facing in them. And th then they start becoming a little more aware about how they really do something. They go, holy cow, it doesn't work. And there are a long list of things like that that have happened. So 
every time somebody's listened to me, let's say 20, 30 years ago, and hung on my every word, and I threw something out there that was, I thought, right, the way, you know, I'm embarrassed by the fact that a few years later I go, wow, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> so I'm very cautious about throwing things out as facts or knowledge. Mm -hmm. there, there are moments in time where I see a certain common blind spot, at least I believe it is, and then I throw something out there to cause people to think about it. That's what that one about the two paths of progression is. I, I think of that as kind of dated already. Um, but it's done its job. It's influenced the way people see parachutes, and they actually see the general glide angle or ground hungriness as one of the choices you make about a canopy. It's not purely a square footage thing. There's an aggressiveness of the canopy that's part of it. Um, so I, I never really thought of it as imparting knowledge. I just exchange ideas and, and see where they go. So I uh, believe you started working for, for PD in 1984, is that right? Or you uh, started skydiving? Somewhere around 83, 84. Okay. What was, what was performance designs like in 1984? It was an idea. Um, I, I went to the drop zone. It's the end of college. And I was jumping this really, really old gear. It was so old that the locals here, or not locals, but visiting people, would look at that gear, and they'd look at my jumpsuit, and they'd go, old gear, old jumpsuit, this guy cannot be current. I want to stay the hell away from him. And uh, I did everything I could to borrow modern gear, you know, which was about 10 pounds lighter than my rig. And then uh, if I could use that modern gear, I could use my modern, smaller jumpsuit and not go low. And one day I was here and I, uh, I saw a little car that had a, a poster board sign on it that said uh, logbook covers and packing mats and gear bags for sale. And it said demo canopies available. So like I made a beeline right over there and I met Bill Coe. And uh, he had a bunch of demos and I wanted the little one. He gave me a big one and, and when I... I said, well, who makes these? And he goes, performance designs. You know, What are they? They're PDs. And it's like, I never heard of them. And he said, well, we make parachutes. You know, I said, you got to like a, give me something small and fast. You know, you have a 170. And he goes, I got a 210 for you because he saw I was kind of a big guy. I'm a little bigger now. And I jumped that thing, and it was like somebody tied me down and poured the coolest Kool-Aid into my <laughs> mouth. It was like, holy cow, this thing, I, I, it opened like quick and crisply. And then when I released the brakes, it just took off. It just, whoo, just started going. And it felt faster than the little 170s that I was able to jump back then. And then when I did my, uh, my first practice flare, it got really quiet. And then I let one toggle up and the thing turned like crazy. And I just went, I, it's just like the, the big hook and the barb just just got me in the mouth, and I was just like done for. That was it. And then I came down. I said, this was so cool, and I was babbling along incoherently. And I said, and he goes, well, you want to try this 170? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, and then he started saying, I'm having a couple of issues with the opening, so I've got this. And he was going to show me this old-school thing called a trailing brake line. Um, what it is is the toggle was tied onto a control line, and then there's a separate line that cascades out and hangs down where 
it ends in a brake setting. So it's a separate piece of line. So if you want to adjust the brake setting, you just change where that line terminates. Basically, it was an overhand knot forming a loop on the bottom of it. And I said, yeah, 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 I know about trailing brake lines. I have jumped gear that old. And I went up and jumped that thing, and it was just like, oh, my God, this is just amazing. It was so futuristic. I just It was blowing me away. And I had this vision of this guy who had this big, huge factory somewhere with like a thousand people or something. You know, I was kind of a naive college kid around this world of, you know, skydiving, you know, hotshot skydivers and manufacturers. And I just, I just went, wow, this is like really something. And then uh, I said to him, look, um, I don't have a job, don't have any money. But I really like that parachute, and I'll do anything to get one. <laughs> and, and this happened in this little uh, building over, actually, it's where Blue Sky Magazine is based right now. Same, same uh, unit. I think it's 104 or 103. And I see six sewing machines in there and a big glass table and about six rolls of fabric and a slab of foam with a sleeping bag on it. And I go, this is PD. This is it. <laughs> it's a one-man show. And he goes, well, here's a cutout table. This is where the fabric and templates are. I'll, I'll pay you $4 an hour credit towards a new parachute at full retail price. And I went, oh, okay. So I packed parachutes to the drop zone, and I was living in my van at the time and uh, just kind of sick of the whole school thing. And I started cutting parachutes. He taught me a little bit about how to, you know, do some basic sewing on them, and and it just went from there. Do you know? Uh, do you remember the first sewing machine that you used? It was a double needle. Um, I think it was a Juki. It, uh, it it actually it was probably an old Singer with one of those pullers that's not very close coupled. Uh -huh. And I was I was putting the leading edge tapes on on uh, the parts folding the fabric by hand and feeding it in. We didn't know anything about folders back then. And uh, and it was just cool, you know, like the phone would ring and he wouldn't be there, so I'd answer it. And it's like, you know, this is George. This is what is it? This is George Harris from George H. Harris Corporation. I'm returning your call. I'm not going to sell you fabric because you're a little shit. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know who you are from Adam, you know. Go buy fabric from somebody else and come back to me when you're when you're big guys. <laughs> that was the old F one eleven guy, you know. But it was it's just been a, a fun ride ever since. Um, what was really interesting though was that um, eventually I moved out of my van into this borrowed little short little trailer, which sucked because it had no headroom. You know, um, it's all this storage stuff that I didn't need because I didn't have anything. And and Bill Coe would would visit. He was still in Miami. And uh, one day he was talking. He said, yeah, you know, we were just having one of those crazy conversations late at night. And he goes, yeah, back at Embry-Riddle. And I went, you went to Embry-Riddle? And he goes, yeah, I went to Embry-Riddle. I, I went there with you, you idiot. And I, and I thought about, I thought about that. And I, and I looked at him and I went, oh my God, that's him. <laughs> and what happened was when I, I started jumping as a junior in high school and uh, down in Panama, Republic of Panama, and then my senior year of high school, my dad moved to Tampa. 
to work at McDill Air Force Base. And they told me that was where I should go because there's big time jumping at Zephyr Hills, Z Hills. So I did my senior year of skydiving and, and uh, of high school in Zephyr Hills skydiving there. And I only I only made about 50 jumps because I couldn't afford it. You know, I didn't have a job or anything. And then I went to, I heard about Emory Riddle and I went there and, and every time we were in a line somewhere, people would be talking about the skydiving club. And then when they heard I had like 70 jumps, they go, are you a senior? It's like, no, I'm a freshman. It's like, oh my God, like, did you jump over the summer? No, I started in high school. Oh my God. And people were doing this crazy, I can't believe what you've done thing. And I'm just feeling like a, a just the worst skydiver in the world that can't do anything. And uh, this guy walked into uh, the university center and he said, do you skydive? And I, and I obviously had a skydiving t-shirt on. And I said, yeah. I, I said, I do. And I go, here comes the same conversation again. He's going to start thinking I'm some sort of freak because I have 73 whole skydives and I'm only a freshman. And he goes, how many jumps do you have? And I said, 73. And I said, how many did you have? And he goes, 1,700. <laughs> and I said, are you a senior? No. <laughs> he started in high school as well. And, uh, but he made a ton of skydives because he did have employment. And uh, I was such a kid. You know, I said, so uh, are you, are you uh, becoming a pilot? No, I am a pilot. And I go, oh, okay. So what program are you in? He's, he was in the uh, airframe maintenance technology I said, oh, so do you want to be an airplane mechanic when you grow up? <laughs> that was my mentality. And he goes, no, I am one. And I went, really? He goes, yeah, I work at Eastern Airlines. I uh, wrench on L-1011s and DC-8s. And I said, well, why are you here? He goes, well, just to get the A&P. I said, you're working at Eastern Airlines wrenching on airplanes and you don't have your A&P license? No. I'm thinking, how the hell did he do that? And then... <laughs> And then I said, so do you want to be uh, uh, an A&P? You know, he goes, no, I'm not going to do that very long. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm going to build parachutes. And then I went, you are one unusual cookie. <laughs> and, and then I'm getting close to the line that I was in. I think it was actually the lunch line. And, uh, and then he said, so uh, when you get your degree, um, you should look me up. We can build parachutes together. And I thought, this dude is from Pluto. There is no way I am ever going to get out of this school, as expensive as it is, with this degree and build parachutes. I'm going to be an airline pilot. I'm going to make good money. There is no fucking way that I'm going to look you up and build parachutes. And I totally forgot about it. And what's funny is that he skydived at Deland Drop Zone and I skydived at the land jobs when I never saw him. And the reason is because he had 1,700 jumps. He could skydive. All the hot shots here, he was welcome on their skydives. I was not. <laughs> <laughs> Two separate factions on the drop zone. I never really noticed him around. And I totally forgot about it. Four years later, I'm cutting parachutes for the guy. And a little bit later, he says, you idiot, I went to Ember-Riddle with you. And then I threw that all together and I went, oh my God. Mind melting. Here I am. <laughs> I am building parachutes for this guy for $4 an hour credit towards a new parachute at full retail price. <laughs> it, was, it was weird. It was a weird feeling. So you were, you were the first uh, employee of PD that, uh, that was not Bill Coe, is that right? I think there were you know one or two that came and went, but I was the only one that stayed. 
Well, it looks like you've worked your way up. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was really interesting how that happened because we'd have these talks at night about parachutes and, and equipment and stuff. He built rigs, you know, before that um, for Bill Booth, actually. And um, he's a big thinker. He's a really, really big thinker. He's, he's far forward, way out there in front of everything. And he'd say some things and I'd say, really? You know, but I believed him because he was like this guy that designed these awesome parachutes. And then little by little, I started coming with, with ideas and, and eventually he let me play with some of them. And, and some of them were kind of not in the line of his thinking. And he just said, just do it. You know, it's kind of a, how, how do I say it? A, a pretty high stress emotional conversation. And he, he stormed out and I stormed out and we did it. And then that parachute, which I thought had some minor changes in it designed to do certain things it was completely different completely different from what either of us had expected it had some characteristics that we were so clueless about we had no idea how much of a change that would be and at that point bill said about that point he said i got an idea and i said what's that bill and he said no i think that we're never gonna be able to build stuff more efficiently we're not industrial, you know, engineers and stuff. We don't know how to run a business or anything, but we know how to build parachutes, obviously. And if we never stop doing research, never, no matter how hard it gets, we'll have a parachute that flies much better than everyone else's, opens and lands much better, hopefully to the point where the skydivers can feel the difference. And of course, parachutes were what ended the the skydive. It was like, it was done. You just used it to get to the ground in those days. And he said, and if we can do it to the point where somebody could watch somebody flying and actually see a difference, we probably wouldn't need to be more efficient and, you know, cut our costs. And we wouldn't need a huge expensive marketing department and everything because people would just love them and beat our doors down. And I went, sounds good to me. I had no idea how true that would be for a long time. In seven years, we moved to a bigger place or added a second place seven times in seven years. And the whole time I'm going, how the hell are we going to build six times as many parachutes as we are right now? Because like the orders were just, it was crazy. And we travel around and share ideas with people and, you know, sleep in tents and stay up all night and all that stuff, the kind of things, the stories you hear about a lot of those boogies in the old days are mostly true. And it was, it's just been a really wild ride. It's been really fun. So at a certain point we got, um, basically ran out of money and, uh, Bill was working at Eastern, uh, and we went down there. Uh, He went down there and, uh, he said, I got good news, John. And I said, what? And he goes, we're moving to Miami. And I stuck out my hand and said, well, it's been fun working with you, Bill. <laughs> and he goes, what? You know, aren't you going to come? And I said, Bill, um, you're not paying me. You, I'm getting $4 an hour towards a parachute at retail price. I have no idea how far along on that. I'm probably not keeping track, but I have to work at the drop zone. I have to do tandems. I have to pack parachutes. I got to put gas in my van that I live in, you know. And then he basically convinced me, again, very forward thinking. And he said, look, you know, I think we got something here. 
And I think it could be absolutely end up to be absolutely nothing, but it could be something really big. And I can't do it alone. And I'm thinking, what else am I doing? So he twisted my arm a little bit and didn't take much. And I said, sure, I'll go. And I never got that flying job. That is 84-ish, right? All the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably 85 by the time he said, we're moving to Miami. How many, and I'll ask a couple questions and let you get them both. How many A parachutes were you building a year at that point? And then today, how many employees does Performance Designs have and how many parachutes a year do you guys build? Bill often says that it, the question of, it wasn't like how many parachutes per week uh-huh. we built, but how many days did it take to build a parachute? Okay. Because it was two of us and we, had, we were doing everything, you know, haphazardly, but doing everything. And uh, by the time we moved down to Miami, um, we pretty quickly got up to about 10, 15 employees. I think right now, immediate employees within the organization were about 300. I think about 280 to 300 people. And it took you how long to build one parachute back in those days? I have no idea because, um, how do I put this? I wasn't the most disciplined (laughs) individual, you know? There was... There was a beer sitting on the side of the sewing machine, and, and one of my responsibilities was make sure I didn't tip it over and tip it on what was probably a parachute lane just underneath <laughs> it. It was a different time, yeah. you know. I was I was in the nobody's going to tell me what to do mode. I'm sick of school. I'm sick of flying. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I am free. You know. I used to go in Miami. I was living in the van for a while too, and I I used to go to the to the bank to give a deposit, and this was a deposit for tandem parachutes that we were giving to you know delivering to Bill Booth. We'd come up here and deliver our ten tandem parachutes so that we could get a a check to that we could cash Saturday morning at Barnett Bank so that we could have cash and bring it back. So these young kids that looked like they needed, at least I looked like I needed to take a shower, would go to the bank and give them, you know, you know $11,000. And we do that on a very regular basis. And they thought, what are these guys? What business are they in? <laughs> and they'd look at me weird. And then I realized it dawned on me. They thought I was homeless. They could see when the, when the van opened up that it, you know, looked like I lived in there. I thought... You idiots. I'm not homeless. I'm free. <laughs> you know, I can do anything. I can go anywhere as long as I can pour enough oil in that old van to get me there. You know? <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was some interesting times. And now we fast forward to today. Uh, man, we, we, went, uh, we did the tour the other day with uh, some of the marketing team. Do you know, and you probably do, can you say how many parachutes a day Performance Designs pumps out now? It, it varies by a great deal. Um, We build a huge mix of parachutes. We build simple little seven cells, seemingly simple. There's a lot more to a small seven cell than you might think. Um, We build canopies that, you know, cross brace, Schumann plan form. Um, We build stuff as small as currently officially 61 square feet. And we build canopies on a fairly regular basis that are 1,200, excuse me, 1,100 square feet. And we've got some bigger. And there's such a mix going on that uh, I don't even know. I don't even know. 
it's amazing what this factory is becoming. And you mentioned that we're just trying to design canopies. We don't know anything about engineering, about manufacturing, about... That's where we started. But yeah. the thing is, is that our, Bill and I had a, had a real passion for, for the, design and manufa- the design and building of parachutes. We needed to hire a bunch of really good people. Mm-hmm. So we, one thing that we did, unlike a lot of the other companies is we hired people outside of the skydiving community who were experts in, you know, industrial engineering and in, in, in production and in quality control in HR, you know, just uh, in, 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 uh, in a lot of different areas. And, and we were willing to listen to what they had to say. We thought some of their ideas were pretty harebrained, but we let them, let them do it. And they, they surprised us. I don't think that many people out there know unless you've taken the tour of the factory, but a lot of the machinery and a lot of the equipment you guys use today are uh, not modified by performance designs, but actually designed by, built by, invented by performance designs. Yeah, yeah, and most of that, most of that machinery is largely designed by Bill Coe. You know, he's got a, a real background in a lot of you know, the weird airplane stuff, the, mm-hmm. the systems in an airplane, and, and he never, he told me stories about his, his youth and... He wanted a he wanted a uh, a mini bike, and his parents said you can't have a mini bike. So he built one. <laughs> he just built one, and uh, he never put brakes on it. <laughs> <laughs> and and he actually will tell you that he thinks that the most the thing that made cars and and uh, motorcycles dangerous was brakes because people were willing to go faster than they probably should. <laughs> okay, he's a very interesting character. But um, yeah, and so he designed the laser cutting tables. He designed our first air permeability testers. He did that when we were a two-person company, the, the permeability tester. We got some fabric. Since we couldn't get the, the, the best stuff around, we bought it from where we could, and we, bought, we built some parachutes where it became very clearly they weren't performing the way they should have, and the fabric was just awful. But we didn't know that. It was sold to us as first-quality fabric. And when he designed this thing to measure the permeability of, of the fabric, I mean, I just, you know, just opened up my van door and went inside and he had this strange contraption that said, I'm measuring the permeability of the fabric and this fabric is shit. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Maybe that's why they're, they're flying, you know, they're not flying so good. And... Um, at that point, he, again, very forward-thinking. We're a two-person company. He said, we're going to keep track of every lot of material we get. And on fabric, we're going to test every single roll. And I, I kind of felt like saying, Bill, we've got six rolls of fabric on the shelf, and they're the same six rolls that were there when I started. you know." But that's, that's the way he is. And uh, so we still do. We do more testing than anybody that I know on first quality fabric and first quality thread. And uh, when it came to, uh, he's built, met, he's designed or built many more permeability testers and, and some of our vendors have our machines simply because they wanted to, to compare their results from our results using, you know, to see if our machine and their machine were giving similar results. Um, we built, uh, Bill designed the laser tables. The idea when we were heading towards 
canopies like the stiletto where the shapes of each cell are different, you know, they, that becomes a real headache with all the templates that you lay on the fabric and cut around with a hot knife. And, and he just saw that was going to be a real big headache. We had, you know, hundreds of templates getting, you know, sliding in and out and banging the corners up, repairing them. He just said, I'm going to cut them by laser. So he went out and looked at all the machines and none of them met his concept of what it should do for us. A lot of them were set up for cutting clothing. A lot of them were um, were works in process. He said one time this guy with a with a suit and tie on was like banging on a keyboard and says, "We're going to cut this part now." And he and he slammed the the uh, the enter key and then this this carriage that moves around on the table. It's supposed to home back to this zero position. It goes it moves up and down and then it goes and it hits the stops on the on the table and jumps the track and hits the ground. <laughs> and he and and he starts laughing, of course. And, and the guy goes, uh, "I think we we need to uh, work on the." I think we had the stops. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> so he designed his own. He stuck himself in his office until the wee hours of the morning. Just you know, taught him, you know. He taught himself, you know, the whole AutoCAD. He's he rarely goes to a school to learn stuff. He's self-taught, and he designed the things. And we've had people um, come in who know about that kind of stuff, and they're amazed at some of his unique solutions. We have. I guess four four tables now. They run day shift and night shift, and they do things that no other tables will do. And it's uh, you say four tables. It's just four tables here. I think it's four. Yeah, yeah it is four here. Just mm-hmm. because we just did the tour, mm-hmm. um, it's four here. And then there's a mirrored factory in. I want to say it's Honduras. It was in Honduras for about ten years. Okay. It's now in. Believe it or not, Honduras got too dangerous, and we moved <laughs> to Mexico. Okay. And uh, we got a great place there. It's it's not like we um, found a factory and said, you guys build our stuff. We basically have our people running it. And so the the person who used to run our Miami shop when I when Bill and I left and came up here, back up here to Miami, excuse me, to DeLand to start the second, the little shop, um, he ran the, the place down in Miami. And then a, around a, a, in a roundabout way, um, we closed that factory. Um, business was slow, and, it, and uh, this was during the Clinton years, I think. And uh, it was just slow one, one winter, and we just thought, wow, you know, let's, let's close it, and then we'll build up our production here in DeLand, and then we'll, be, we'll just be here. It'll be more effective, more efficient. And unemployment was like 1.9%. We couldn't. We failed miserably at, at uh, building up the production the amount. So the guys that were running the place down there said, look, let's go someplace where there are people who want to work and who are skilled. And uh, we chose Honduras. And we were there 10 years, and it, was, it became the homicide capital of the world. And eventually it was just, it was just too dangerous. So the same crew looked around with us to find a, a place that was suitable. We looked all around the world and we chose, we chose Mexico. As many people as we could went from Honduras to Mexico, as many as the law would allow. And uh, it's running well now. It's, it's a smaller factory than we have here, but it, it helps. It helps. So you, you talked a little bit about the, uh, I'm just really interested in the, in the fabrics and in the, the design and just the progression of the design. Was everything F111 when you guys started? 
Yeah, that was like the latest, coolest stuff. It packs small. And how many suppliers were there? Like, how many choices do you guys have to find a, a better fabric? It's it's hard to. We didn't really know much about the way, like, who made what back in those days. Um, there's something called a converter, and they're the people that sell the fabric, but they don't necessarily make the fabric. They are the they are the brand name that you know, like F one eleven. I mean, F one eleven is actually not is is a trade name for a fabric that hasn't been made in I think twenty five years. And uh, the the mills that weave fabric are not interested in the volume that a company like us or anybody in our industry would do. They use our industry as a little sideline. So the big mills, the few that are still in in the States, if you look at all the parachute fabric that all of the industry needs, including all those millions of round parachutes that are built for the military, that represents about, a, I believe it's about one-tenth of a percent of the mill's business. Wow. It probably probably is also about 30% of the complaints from their customers. So it's a tough, yeah. it's a tough thing to, to do. And, and you, you, I once thought like, why, why do they do it? And the reason is because they want that huge order of sleeping bag and tent material from the military or whatever, where there's lots of volume. And those guys want a really cheap price and they also want good quality. And instant delivery. I mean, gosh, did, you know, is there anything else they want? <laughs> and so one way that they gauge the quality is they say, you have good quality. And, and these mills like to be able to say, why, sure, we actually build the fabric for parachutes. That's life support equipment. <laughs> and they go, okay, I'll take all the sleeping bag material you can get. So there's so it also... L- it looks good on the resume is what you mean. Yeah, and, and I think also there are some really bright people in those companies and they want something cool to do and parachute fabric is an amazing amazing thing it's it blows me away that it performs the way it does and you know our our people in the engineering department are super smart about this bill super smart about it and um it's just amazing how it goes together it's 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 a crazy process i can't even begin to describe it in a way that would be understandable um even to me (laughs) and uh the fabric is woven, and then it's um, finished in some way. It's calendared. It's squished between huge rollers under pressure and uh, squished a little bit flatter, and then it goes through some other treatments, especially for Zero P. And each of those companies is, is usually a separate, a separate company, each being the supplier to the next, and then it goes to this converter. So in the early days when we were built, buying F-111, it was basically a 1.1-ounce nylon, low-porosity, calendared fabric, and it was either first quality or it wasn't. But you didn't quite know where it came from when you talked to anybody who would talk to a two-person company. You just didn't know. And we solved that problem pretty quick because of that story I told a little while ago. Um, as time goes on, you know, many years later, I'm sitting at a table and I've got somebody from the, the people we buy, you know, the technical people from who we buy from. And then we've got some people from this huge weaving company who 
basically the entire industry gives them a tenth of 1% of their business and they're sitting at our table. And then there's somebody from DuPont who was making the nylon and some people from the finishing company. I'm going, wow, these guys, they do care about our business. It's not just our supplier. It's all the people that they bring. So it's a really interesting collaborative thing that makes the fabric the way it is. And what's, what's really, what I've noticed um, in the last, say, 10, 15 years is that there are a lot of parachute ven- uh, fabric vendors who want our business. They see us as the mother load. You know, we're the big guys kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they want that business. And so they, we talk to them at PIA or whatever. And then they come visit us. And then Bill starts asking a few questions. And, uh, and the engineering manager, Cappy, starts asking some questions. And then a few of our technical people, they start getting into this discussion. And it very quickly, you, you, you learn if that person that's sitting at our table from the, from the company is a salesperson or if he really has a lot of technical knowledge. And, and after a while, I think sometimes they question whether they really want our business or <laughs> not because we're asking them some pretty hardcore technical questions. We're telling them about how we look at fabric quality and how it's different from the industry. We're, we're saying certain parameters that they're, they're picky about. They're just picky because that's what the clothing manufacturers want, and it's not that important to us. But there are other things that are almost off their radar screen that are very important for us, and we have discussions about that, and then we find out who, who they really are and whether they really want our business. And... Um, it's interesting. And the thing is, is that even though they think of us as big, we're still a small company. You know, we can push them far enough that they can say, look, just take your parachute thing and just go away from us. Mm-hmm. So we work to elevate their quality. We work to elevate their understanding of our needs and of our industry. And it's pretty cool. And I, I'm sure that other manufacturers benefit from the work that, that we do with them. You know, we're both getting a lot smarter. I want to go back just a little bit to your story about uh, renting the first parachute from from Bill. Mm-hmm. When uh, just hearing you describe it, it sounds like there was almost the thought that there was the the perfect one parachute for everybody. It was that, is that kind of how it how it seemed? Well, in those days, that's what it was. Every new parachute that came out replaced the previous parachute because you know it. What people wanted primarily. Let me let me put it this way. I'm. Uh, a story about Bill Booth, okay? And this is back when I was in college. And, like, I met Bill Booth. Look look at that big, long beard and everything. And I was just blown yeah, away. He that just, was me yesterday. He'd just, <laughs> he'd, just, he'd just show up at the drop zone, and he'd wear this big, huge, you know, baggy suit, and he'd, he'd look very nervous, and he'd hop on the DC-3 and, and pace n- back and forth nervously. And at about five or 6,000 feet, he'd just leave. And it's like, wow, you know? It's like, no, he doesn't want to go up and do relative work at that's not him. You know, he just wants to go out and fly around. And uh, one day there was a party at his house. It was a New Year's party back before he had more sense than to have Scott Evers over to his house <laughs> for New Year's. And uh, I'm sitting on the on his the steps in his back. Uh, you know, he's on a lake and a really cool house. And, and we're in this c- conversation. It's late at night and, and everybody's completely toasted. And there was one of his neighbors there who turned out he was, he was one of the uh, English professors from my school. So I kind of felt like, oh, there's somebody from school here. I got to be on my best behavior. 
And I just asked him, Bill, what is the future of skydiving equipment? And I was just so like ready for this cosmic, cool, you know, be wonderful Bill kind of answer. And he said, well, not much really. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, we're, we're pretty much done. This is um, probably about 1982, somewhere around there, maybe 83, probably 82. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he said, I've already invented the hand-deployed pilot chute, which eliminates the bulk of the spring-loaded pilot chute and eliminates the burble on deploying your main. I've already invented the single handle cutaway system with nothing to catch and on any on your reserve when it deploys got the streamlined wedge container very flat to quicken your your exits and more streamlined for better diving as far as the parachutes themselves we've gone from 1. I think 8 ounce to 1.6 to 1.3 to 1.1 ounce F111 now it's as small as fabric can be without falling apart all the reinforcing that's in parachutes, we re- eliminate all of that reinforcing that we possibly can without the parachute blowing up. And we've got vec- uh, Kevlar lines that are low bulk, can't get any smaller without them breaking. And everybody knows that if you build a parachute smaller than 200 square feet, it's just going to land you hard. So we're pretty much done. And I just went, oh. and then like within a year and a half later, I'm we're we're building our first 159 cell <laughs> but but in those days it was basically some parachute from some company was the best one and there might be different versions of what best was there were two or three companies but something was the ultimate and everything else that they built they no longer built because this was the ultimate it was just a thing to get you to the ground in one piece so you could skydive again literally people when they threw their pilot chute the jump was almost over, and when the parachute opened, it was over. It was literally over. You know, it was all about the free fall, and it was over, except for a few crazy people that, that uh, you know, would run their parachutes into one another, you know, um, and, or, or people who would do accuracy. The whole thing was to get out alone and immediately open this huge parachute and land on what is now uh, the size of a nickel, but in those days was about, uh, was about, about the top of a Slurpee cup in diameter, you know, and that's what they did. And so people were indignant about their love of free fall and their need for a parachute. And the only reason they wanted a new parachute was because it packed smaller. So when we came out with, uh, there was a company called Glidepath International that came out with some really fun parachutes and I was totally addicted to them. Uh, anytime I could, I'd jump a, uh, the wildfire, which was the baddest, smallest. It was small, but it had nine cells, which it was like, why? You know, you've got a seven cell that's about 170 square feet. Why would you build a nine cell? It's just going to pack bigger. But then you flew it and you go, ooh, I get this. You know, if you flung it at the ground hard enough, it would do this little mini little swoop across the ground. Nobody had ever seen that. Before that, it was the... Um, the bandit and uh but that was like for lunatic people you know the the average joe jumped their seven cells or their bigger nine cells and every time a new canopy came out it it made the old one obsolete and when we came out with the uh when i i got addicted to to bill's you know bill co's you know pd nine cells and then we developed them to where they were 
pretty nice and people started jumping them and they found that they glided flatter. They were more fun. They were easier to land. And they said, Hey, that was fun. Can I have a smaller one? You know, cause we built them about 20 square feet apart, which people weren't doing back then. And then uh, we built the Excalibur and a lot of people went onto the Excalibur, which was the first cross brace canopy, but it was rectangular open nose F one eleven, And it was a pretty unforgiving parachute, especially when it got old. And, uh, a lot of people changed over to it, but I noticed a lot of folks didn't really, they really shouldn't have. So when we did the Sabre, uh, it was all about forgiveness, you know, make a canopy open, you know, reasonably well. In those days, that was a great opening. Nobody wanted a snivelly parachute back then because they were dumping below two grand usually. Okay. And, uh, and then when we did the stiletto, we really had to push hard to get people to realize this is not replacing the Sabre. It's actually a different parachute that flies differently it's not better it's just different you have pickup trucks you have sports cars you have station wagons this is like that and people were like no i want this because i want to get on the right loads i gotta have it it's the latest i need to have it and they didn't and that was like the beginning to me of two different zero p9 cells that were pretty similar in some ways and people had a choice and then now of course everybody you know that's embraced but back then it wasn't it wasn't. So it's changed a lot from those days until now, thankfully. Did, did you guys notice that, that, that it presented a, a problem? I mean, were, did accidents increase? Did you, were more people getting hurt on, on their parachute? That happened, but it happened mostly in Europe because a company called Parachutes de France um, came up with a canopy called the Blue Track, which beat us to the market with Zero P just a little bit before the Sabre came out. A totally different parachute. It was flat gliding, very quick on the toggles. It was considered an, an elliptical canopy, but in retrospect, it was very, very slight taper on the trailing edge. It, it, it almost looks rectangular when you look at it. But because of the, the trim angle and the airfoil and a few other things, it was extremely responsive. And it really needed to be, it was a lot harder to land than, than they thought. So they also were, you know, that's the one of the things that happens is you get experts developing parachutes, and they sound just like I did when I first jumped builds. Like they drank the Kool Aid, they're thrilled with it. They don't realize how much their talent is making up for, you know, what they're flying basically, and or they don't realize how much the adrenaline buzz they're getting is making them not notice how hard they're hitting the ground. <laughs> you know, one or the other, usually a combination. But they put the, par the, the the blue track on the market and they said, this is so fantastic, we shall not even speak of the wing area. Because they thought if you knew how small this thing was, you wouldn't jump it. So they didn't call the the BT, the, the blue track 150. They didn't call it a 150. They just called it a 40 or something. I don't remember. the. There was a 40, a 50, and a 60, I think, and a 70 or the eight, the eighty was the tandem, but they, they, it was a mystery because that's the way they did it, and it was really cosmic and cool, and it swept <laughs> Europe with a lot of people who were really loving it, and uh, and a lot of people getting hurt and killed, a lot of people getting hurt and killed. So, thankfully, they, for us, thankfully, and for the community, in my opinion, the the French uh, decided that they didn't want to go to um, to the states because of all the lawyers here. So the, the Sabre, which was much more forgiving, much more powerful flare in terms of ease of landing, you know, like slowing down the descent rate, slowing down the forward speed, 
Um, so it had its it had its day. So the the stiletto when it came out was basically sort of in the guise of that quicker turning, flatter gliding canopy, but it had a huge amount of flare power. And because we were concerned about that, we basically oversold the requirements that the pilot needed to have to fly it so that it would hopefully give people the idea that maybe they weren't cut out for it. It's actually a pussycat to fly. But in those days, people wouldn't really, you wouldn't talk about improving somebody's landing. If they had a couple hundred jumps and you said, you know, dude, you need to keep your toggles level when you land, they would be completely insulted. (laughs) They'd say, dude, I have 352 jumps, and of the last 300, every single one of them is a stand-up. If that parachute didn't land me hard, it's the parachute's fault. How dare you talk about my landing of a parachute in front of my girlfriend? You know, it was total indignation. You couldn't do it. You know, now people, of course, are all about getting tips, but it was not that way back then. So, um, and people didn't really have the skills back then that, as they do now. The skill of a skydiver was based on their free fall capabilities. It had nothing to do with their ability to fly and land a parachute as long as they could land where they wanted, unharmed and basically standing up. Um, they were an expert on that part because it wasn't that relevant. It's a different world now, thankfully. Yeah, I guess I hadn't seen Swoop Freestyle yet. I look really cool falling down. No one, no one knows. Yeah, like now, <laughs> heck, you know, people people find it fashionable after a big long swoop to land on their ass. You know, the the <laughs> sign of of scorn was to be getting into the airplane with with mud on your jumpsuit in the old days. They'd look at your tiny rig, and they'd look at your jumpsuit with covered with mud and grass stains, and they they laugh at you. Now that's like you got special pants that you wear <laughs> <laughs> to do that. You know. I've got these coveralls to cover what I want to wear. <laughs> so between the 30-some years that you've been doing this, I wonder if there's been a moment where you thought about walking away from, from the whole thing. Was there a moment where I'm like, nah, this, this just isn't worth it? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's times. In the beginning, it's different than now. In the beginning, I would uh, drive my rusty old you know, Fiat or my old van up to like the World Skydiving Convention. Usually it's somewhere in... in, in uh, in Illinois, and I'd be working out of a tent. It was hotter than hell. We would be skydiving all day. I'd be packing par- packing demos. We used to have demo rigs in those days. We'd put the parachute in the rig and just say, here you go. And it was like 15, 16-hour days in the hot sun, packing, hearing stupid stories. And then at night, partying. And people would sleep a couple of hours and get up in the morning and expect that they could continue to do that for nine days. And it was just crazy and I remember just going man I'm just so wanting this to be over and I'd look up and then there'd be a pilot shooting toe and then call whoop right in front of me you know when I say right in front of me you know a thousand feet this way I'm going jeez you know that's an old one you know people have done that before we know how to handle that there's a, there's more handles left and god this sucks and then the boogie keeps going. The wind shifts a little bit, so I turn my body and face the other way because now the wind's going this way, and it's better to pack that way. And then next thing you know, kawapa, another one, 45 minutes later. And it's like, God. And you look up, and there are people landing parachutes down the roads 
through the middle of the boogie between the tents and the vans, and there was no landing area because everybody used to, in those days, if you were cool, you landed on your packing mat. You know, you'd kind of sink it in and plop down, and people were swooping down, not swoop, well, I guess in those days it was swooping, but they were coming on final approach down a road only to see that there was somebody coming the opposite way on the same road. There was no, you know, land this way. Um, People were running into cars and everything, and I just said, man, I want to get out of here. I just want to get out of here. And then get on the road and try to fight sleep to get back, you know. But every time I'd feel that I don't want to be here thing, there was there was just this, there's a kind of, I guess you, I hate to sound cosmic, kind of like a vibe that I get when I go to an event where, you know, I'm, I'm hanging around, it's usually a day or two, and maybe I'll make a couple skydives, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'll just get up from a landing, and I'll look around, and there's this weird kind of sense that I have. It's like, this is it. This is it. This is why I do this. This is, like, really cool. I can't put a name on it, but I just feel this little buzz going through me because I'm here with these people doing this stuff, and then so I forget about that. I want to quit. Later on, it's... it's um, it's usually usually has to do with the sense of responsibility that we have for the community when people are doing just impressively, impressively stupid, stupid stuff. And they want me or somebody else to give them some technical facts, some understanding so that with these facts, they now possess what they need to do this. And it's not the case. Learning aerodynamic formulas or or you know procedures does not make you capable of of going way beyond where you are you have there's a part of it that's just being in the environment and being more sense being more acutely aware of what's going on what's happening with the parachute in a way that's not a fact it's it's a it's a feedback loop between reality and you that's instantaneous it's a flow and, and at a certain point, you just feel you got it. And, and sometimes you actually do have it. But there's always a little something that you're a little rough on. And so you got to look for that. And that's what it is to me. It's, it's not stuff my head full of more facts. Yeah, I, I, I hate that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I teach a lot of canopy courses. And I tell people, fly by the seat of your pants is commonly referred to as a rogue thing to do in life. And I hate that. Because flying your parachute, you're flying by the seat of your pants. You should feel what's going on in your bottom end. You should feel what your harness is giving you. Whatever exactly. I tell you, feel what's going on and fly that. And don't try to wrap some memorized fact around it. Just mm. see what it feels like. There, I'm, I'm into vintage airplanes. Um, you got a beautiful stagger wing, I believe. It's not a stagger wing. It's Somebody a, it's a Waco, a, a okay. biplane, a cabin biplane like a stagger wing, but it's kind of like the poor man's Waco. It's built in 1936, and it seats four or five people. It's got roll-down windows, big old slobber and radial engine up front. I'd love to see this plane someday. Well, it's it's uh, it's going through a very extended annual right now because she's getting a little old. But uh, <laughs> but I've got one of those, and I got a little a little puddle jumper. Little uh, it's called the Naranka Chief. It's um, it's got a little four cylinder engine, burns like almost no fuel, sixty five horsepower, and it cruises around about eighty eighty five, and it's got very little instrumentation in it, and it's got some aerodynamic characteristics that instructors are taught about, but those characteristics have been kind of removed from modern airplanes. And when I say modern, I mean planes from like the 60s and on. 
they've been removed to make those airplanes good trail horses. You know, you can get on a trail horse at a tourist place, never having been on a, on a horse, and you think, I'm going to ride a horse. You know, I'm a horsey guy. And, and the horse, the moment you put your foot in the stirrup, the horse goes, oh, God, another dumb human. Never <laughs> been on a horse. And the guy's sitting there, and he's, like, leading off one side and leaning off the other, and the horse goes, jeez, it's going to be a hard day at work today. But I know where the barn is. And then finally the leader of the pack says, okay, guys, Let's go this way. Go ahead and get your horse going. Remember what I said? And so the, the, the dumb tourist, you know, kicks the horse in the ribs, and the horse goes, oh, dumb human. He just told me to run like hell and jump that brick wall. But he's a dumb human, and I'm a trail horse, so I'm going to walk the trail because I know that's what he meant. And that's the way parachutes are in some cases, like the student parachutes. I mean, to some degree, but that's the way a lot of airplanes are. So... I'll bring an instructor for a ride in, in my little yellow airplane because it's got some of these characteristics. It's actually very forgiving, but it doesn't, those things haven't been removed. Every one of those instructors knows this characteristic I'm talking about. And if you've got pilots out there, it's called adverse aileron yaw. And everybody can recite to you the facts of what that is. But you get the person in the airplane and you have them turn the airplane and it, it doesn't do what they want. And suddenly they, they suddenly feel like they're not a pilot. And then I go through it little by little. And what I do is I get them to feel their butt on the seat and the little side to side. Like when you go down a little windy road and you're a kid, you can feel yourself sliding one way or the other. That's one of the seat of the pants feels, but there are others. And eventually I get them to figure it out. And every once in a while, they push on the wrong rudder pedal trying to fix the problem and then they cuss at themselves and that's because they got stuck in their head about some facts that they were taught or that they teach about adverse aileron yaw instead of just feeling it and looking at what's happening. It's the easiest thing in the world. I've, I've taken skydivers up and within two or three flights, they're perfectly flying that airplane because I speak about things that a skydiver can make sense of and I don't talk to them about all the technobabble stuff, all the, the aerodynamic facts and memorize this, memorize that. I just say, look at what's happening. Did you see that? Yeah. I say, okay, try it again. You see that? Yeah, I saw it that time. Okay. Don't let that happen. Look out the window. You don't need an artificial horizon. You got a real one right out in front. <laughs> and then I tell people who are skydivers that I do this with, why are you afraid that I covered up the, in the uh, airspeed indicator on the instrument panel? you know how fast you're going, not as a number, but you know how fast you're going relative to flight. Do you have an airspeed indicator on your parachute? Do you have an attitude indicator on your parachute? No, you've got the reality around you. That seat of the pants thing is so much a part of flying parachutes. And when people get me going about how do I fly my parachute better, that's what I talk about. I don't, I don't get into a bunch of technical stuff. You apologized a couple of times about, sorry about no knowledge, no knowledge. And I didn't expect that. I did expect that you were going to drop some knowledge at some point today. And I'm actually happier that you haven't because one of the largest things we fight as canopy coaches is just stop thinking about it, bro. Yeah. Just go fly your wing. It's really fun. I promise. Yeah. It's funny when, you know, in these evening sessions where we, uh, me and, friends and other you know people who meet me and they want to pick my brains on this stuff they usually start a question by stating some things to provide a context and all those things are thought by them as facts 
And every one of those things, if they're talking aerodynamics, almost every one of them, there are holes I can poke through because there's something that was learned in a book or said to them that is really not quite true. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting because um, I have to really exercise restraint on whether I want to go there with people. You know, and, and like I said before we started, I, I tend to do that with somebody who's in a position of, of influence and is teaching a, a curriculum and providing a foundation for the students to understand what's going on. And, and it does produce results uh, that are better than what the student had before. But a lot of times you can see a very kind of mechanistic look to it all. It's not a flow. It's not a, you can tell they're not flying by the seat of their pants. They're flying a procedure in their head. And there's a kind of a, a, a choppy kind of mechanistic kind of first this, then this, then this. And that is a way that you can learn things. But at some point, you've got to get to that, that flow. And I'm not talking some sort of cosmic stuff. I'm just saying being, being in that moment fully and actually seeing what's going on. And uh, I'll never forget um, one of the skydives that really hooked me to skydive here. Uh, skydiving here with um, Tom Pyrus got two people and said, let's go do a four-way. I had no idea that the three of them were like pretty much national or world champion four-way people. And they went up and we did this skydive that I thought, I can't believe they're organizing this skydive with me in it, you know. And it, to me, went just so miraculously well. I was on top of the world and, and on the ground we're walking back and they're all quiet. And I'm like blown away. Like, I can't believe it. In those days, we had something called a back-in. Now we call it an out-facing mm -hmm. position. And there was something called a side shot. I don't know what they call that, a side body kind of mm -hmm. thing. And the skydive was nothing but a series of those things. And, and we just went round and round, and I was just so blown away by it. And I said, so uh, how'd I do? And Pyrus went, well, you did all right. <laughs> I, I just wonder, though, I wonder what would happen if you just open your eyes and see what's really going on. And that was my debrief. And, and at that point, I said, I know there's something I'm missing. And then I realized what they gave me, what they, they gifted me, was the presence of a three-way formation with one slot missing again and again and again and again on that jump. I'm going, there it is. I'm heading in there. I'm going to swing side. Here comes my side shot. Oh, my God. The next one's. The... And there you're going, why are you over there <laughs> in their head? <laughs> you know, and, and it just, I, I didn't make the leap to the idea that if I was so smug with the fact that I'm, Sorry. it's four feet over and I can actually go over there. I can control my descent rate, my forward speed and my rotation to actually wind up within you know, the distance that they could reel me in, you know? And I was so, so enthralled that I had achieved, you know, that. And, and they're like going, man, this guy, you know, just open your eyes, be aware, you know? And they could have filled my head with, you know, well, this is called an outfacing point. You need to do this and that, put your elbows here, put your arms there. And that would have just so cluttered up my head with more stuff to think about. That's, Everybody learns different, but it doesn't work for me. One of the things we do at Spaceland on your first solo jump and, and your, basically your first AFF jump in the middle of the skydive, we turn the student, we point them to the drop zone. 
And every new instructor that does an orientation goes, oh, so they can learn to ID the drop zone in free fall. No, we're taking the blinders off them and getting them to open their eyes. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's such a huge statement. I love that you say that. I, I, I tell jumpers all the time, instinct is better than knowledge because knowledge doesn't do anything for me. Instinct does. Mm-hmm. And instinct can build knowledge. So I, I love how you keep going. You say cosmic, man. I, I'll tell you, you were talking a language with us. That, that is yeah. the, the, the self-awareness that you have mentioned more than once and alluded to more than once is, is a huge and important thing to the yeah. human growth. I was sitting uh, a couple of nights ago with, with a very well-known and very talented skydiver who does organizing and stuff. Just they're just It was not just one. It was several. And uh, they were asking questions about about the way this stuff, you know, what I think about the way all this stuff works. And, and but they always began it with, well, because of this, you've got this, and you've got lift, and you've got gravity, and you've got this and that, and and so many of those things were so confining for me to actually hear the question because it was so cloaked with all those facts that I I I couldn't really answer the question in a way that would get through all that stuff. So I basically kind of took some of that stuff apart. I mean, simple things like why does an airplane, when you take the right trailing edge and pull it down, okay, let let me start over. When you take a parachute and you pull the trailing edge down with your right toggle on the right, it, it turns to the right, okay? But on an airplane, when you do that, it rolls to the left and turns to the left. And why is that? And and I've I've actually had NASA engineers, you know, ask me about the, the aerodynamics of a parachute that they were using of ours, and I'd ask them the same question, and they'd say, "Well, it's a drag turn." I said, well, "What's that?" And I kind of thought, "You don't know what a drag turn is, and you design this stuff." And he goes, "Well, the drag turn is, you see, that side of the wing, the the the, the trailing edge comes down, and that produces more lift, but it produces more drag. So the drag." creates a yaw to the right, and the yaw creates a roll, a, a yaw-induced roll, which causes the parachute to bank, and that's why it turns. And there's like six different ways I can poke holes through that because it's all based on the aerodynamics of what essentially is that old Aronka chief airplane, which will do those things if you, if you allow it. Um, and so every once in a while, I just basically poke holes through that stuff and leave them confused. And they're blown away by it, but they're also saying, there's nothing I thought was true about parachutes is true. And they're, they're looking like they're in shaky ground. They're like on thin ice, like, oh my God. Like, so I got to be careful who I do this to. <laughs> you got to have somebody who really knows how to fly a parachute. And they know how to fly it by the seat of their pants, but they're telling themselves all these things all the time. And I tell myself these things all the time. And then at some point I realize that one's bullshit. <laughs> this one's bullshit too. Oh my God. Well, if those two are bullshit, then can this be true? And it just goes on and on. So, um, so I, I do that. And then at a certain point, um, we get exhausted and, you know, go find a place to sleep, you know, but the, the thing is, is, is they think that I know so much about parachutes because here they are completely confused about what one is, but they forget the fact that they've been flying by the seat of the pants for a long, long time and they tell a story about it, you know? What they don't realize is that when they get into that place of complete confusion 
about how this stuff really works. That's where that's that's my daily life at, at work here when I'm working on R and D with these people here. You know, the stuff that we think we know gets us what we've got. What's next? It's not being you know, it's not falling in love with all the things that you feel are facts, but they're actually at opinions at best, and in many cases they're wrong. The the one thing that's that's interesting to me about people who speak about parachutes, the things they say sound completely plausible. They sound true. It's seductive. I mean, they do. But the one thing that 99.9% of these people have never experienced is messing with the aerodynamics of the parachute to the degree that we do here and that other companies do as well. Um, and when you mess with the, the, the aerodynamics just a little bit, you find the parachutes perform differently. And you, you can't believe the small, subtle changes in a parachute design that, that create that. I mean, ridiculously small stuff. And along the way, you try something that sounds very plausible, and the parachute eats itself. It just doesn't fly. It just completely doesn't fly. And there's, there's different trends, and people now are talking about when you pull a toggle, sometimes the parachute turns the other way, and they want to know why. They want a technical explanation. And I have theories about that. And I've had theories about that for over 30 years because there was a parachute called a Merlin that Pioneer built, and it was in the 70s. It was a seven cell, and it was not very popular but it was a really badass parachute. It, it was a swoopy parachute back when nobody could conceive of a swoop. And when you pull a toggle a little bit on that canopy, it would turn the opposite way. And, you know, I could wrap my brains around trying to come up with a plausible explanation, and I've got about six or seven of them. But I don't know. I really don't know. And it doesn't matter because that's what it does. And you can come up with some, you can become, you can fall in love with one, you know, I could fall in love with one of those six ideas and then I could convince myself it's a fact. And then I have a learning plateau, an obstacle for as long as I hold on to that. And eventually reality slaps me in the face and says, that's bullshit. And then we move on. So what we've done here in our R&D, we build a lot of prototypes here. You're going to talk to Brad tomorrow, right? He's, he does testing here. He intentionally tries to stay out of those conversations because he doesn't want them influencing his seat-of-the-pants feel. No and bias he, expectations. Yeah, well, we always have them no matter how hard we yeah. try to get rid of them. And that's the hardest thing for me because when I make a change to a parachute, a subtle change, and I discuss why we're doing that with the project leads, that I... You know, we have an expectation, but, but we, I, we try to frame it like if this aspect is, is valid, then there might be opposing things. If this part of it is dominant, then it's going to do A. But if that's kind of not so dominant and there's this other opposing thing, if that's dominant, it's going to be B. So I get to sound very, very smart. I can say it'll either do this or that, and either way I'm right. I got a theory for both, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But, but the thing is, is, is it, it sounds weird. Nobody on AFF wants to hear that their parachute designer embraces their cluelessness. But that's how we move forward, basically. We do. I mean, there, there are so many things. I mean, just simple things. The idea of trim. Trim angle. You know, a lot of folks talk about trim angle. It's kind of that how much this thing's pointed at the ground. We have to talk about trim in different ways with the project leads, the people who are involved with me in parachute design. We have to say, it, 
it's trimmed steeper. And if we say that, it's incomplete. We have to say, are you saying that the design, like in the computer, is trimmed a little steeper? Or are you speaking as a pilot saying it feels like it, it's a steeper, like it's a, it's a more ground-hungry, steeper mm-hmm. parachute? And we've learned how to clarify those things. It flies steeper or it flies with a bigger recovery arc. That may not be consistent with how it's trimmed. We have parachutes that are trimmed quite flat that actually fly quite steep and the reverse. You know, it's like, why is that? Well, that's a big rabbit hole. You want to go down there right now? I don't think so. You know, but that's what we explore. We're constantly exploring that stuff. Otherwise, we're going to get the same stuff that we've already done. And we're not, you know, it's it's been a fun ride. I really love all those parachutes, but we're all about what's coming next. Keeping in mind that we're in an environment with all those parachutes out there. So what's, what makes sense for next? You know, that's, that's where the, the Valkyrie came. I, uh, first of all, I recently had a conversation with a friend who argued with me about the steepness of a canopy, the glide path, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, but look at the math. Look at the numbers, the trim of this one, the trim of that one, the trim of I'm like, yeah, but you have so many other things yeah. that apply to that. And so I'm so happy because this guy is a very, very smart friend of mine, and he's good enough of a friend. Like, Nick and I can absolutely take shots across each other all day long. And this is another friend I'm going to go home and say, remember that argument we got in? Yeah. John LeBlanc, back me up, bro. I got you. <laughs> so I'm going to play this, this moment back. So thanks for just well, a poke at a friend. Well, well let me give a, a, specific, a specific example. Um, most people, if they actually compare the same size canopy, and I'm going to give specifics here, there's a specter and there's a storm, and they're both, you know, seven cell. Mm-hmm. They have a, how similar a plan form? It's the identical plan form. They're the same, Okay. And there's a few differences aerodynamically in the parachute, but one of them, you know, and and the sum total of that makes people mostly feel that the storm is a lot steeper canopy. It's got a bigger recovery arc. It's it the glide ratio at full glide is 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 steeper than the Spectre. Um, when you get into the toggles, it's very floaty and very powerful in comparison to the Spectre. But they feel very very different. The aspect ratio is the same. The plan form is the same. There's a few things different in the design, but one thing that's not different is the trim angle. They are, the, they are trimmed the same. So we have a video where you will hear a very, very hotshot canopy pilot and an expert at instruction for canopy pilots. And she said, well, you know, she loves these two canopies. Uh, and it's Maxine. And she said, and the steeper trim of the of the uh, the storm gives it this and that. And I love these two parachutes. Um, and she's not wrong about it. Talking from a pilot's perspective, but she was not aware that from a design standpoint, they're trimmed the same. They're trimmed the same. So, so I mean, I'm not trying to diss Maxine because the information she gave to the public who just want to know about these parachutes, want to see some eye candy and some cool video and want to know which one's which, it's important to know that this one flies steeper than that one or it feels steeper, it feels more ground hungry and then that helps you make a decision. So I'm good with that. But when somebody wants to talk math and parachute design in a technical standpoint and stuff like that comes up, 
well, what about the trim? Do you have a 7.9 degree trim angle? <laughs> it's like, that's the ideal trim angle, you know? And I said, oh, that's cool. I'll make a note of that. Thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really interesting just to hear your process of how PD has kind of moved forward as a, as a company. Um, and just, uh, I guess I, it, the way you talk about it, I see a little bit of, like I see, I see the, the gear spinning in your head of just the process of how the company handles self-reflection and uh and improvements and i wondered if you had i like to think that our listeners get some sort of you know maybe a history lesson and they appreciate that the manufacturers but i also like the thought that people get to listen to some of the stuff that's said on here and and grow as as people and learn lessons from from smart gentlemen like yourself i wonder if you have any sort of philosophy when it comes to to self-reflection and uh how people can be honest when they're kind of assessing growth and assessing their own skills Hmm, that's a that's an interesting one. A lot of folks don't want me to talk about personal growth and stuff because they think I I I dwell on that stuff too much. Um, I I always have a lot of things after just speaking about people reciting things they learned in books about aerodynamics that don't necessarily apply to parachutes or not in the way they think. I I feel like when it comes to that kind of thing, I'm I'm just like that. I I listen to things that people say. Uh, you know, online or wherever in seminars, and then some of that stuff resonates with me, and then it kind of sticks with me. Um, I would say that um, that being fearless is is a not necessarily a good thing. I think being courageous is better. Um, acting acting with uh, with intention. And moving forward in spite of the fear because you've, you, you feel that it's manageable. And at the same time, you know, people say fear is uh, false evidence appearing real. Well, sometimes that shit is real, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that big saber-toothed tiger will tear you up, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I've seen, uh, I know of a guy, a local guy here, uh, Skydiver, he's not Skydiver now, but uh, he did for a long time and He'd go out on, on his boat with his friends and there'd be an alligator in the water and he'd jump out and wrestle it. And that's what he did. He's a Florida boy, you know. But uh, one time I was in a my cedar strip canoe and it was super quiet and cosmic. I was there with my lady and we're paddling along and I said, I want to look at this thing. It's just this big, huge alligator just laying on this tree that's kind of fallen into the river. It's just laying there and he's just getting sun and he's not moving. Alligators almost never move. And I started going towards him, and all of a sudden he jumped off on that thing, on that thing, and he started swimming towards me with his eyeballs and his nose out, and he's going straight to us. And my girl's shitting her pants, I'm shitting my <laughs> pants, and we're just like, keep paddling. And all of a sudden he's looking right at us, and then his eyes and nose goes under the water. <laughs> and I'm like, he's under us, you know? It's like that shit's real. That fear was telling you about something real, and the fact that it often tells us you know, some shit that's in our head that shouldn't be there and it's not real is, you know, it's also helpful. Um, I, I don't know what to say. I think everybody is an individual and, and they should kind of sort that out for themselves. But I think that one of the tools is to learn something, learn some facts about things, learn a, about the, the technical side of things. And that's a, that's a good tool, but it's very often overused. 
you know, if somebody is into cars, they'll say, well, it's got independent wishbone suspension, you know, upper and lower trailing arm links. And I'm talking crap because I don't really know that language, <laughs> but I've heard some of those words. And like for somebody in the audience that's like really into cars, they're going, John doesn't know anything about cars. <laughs> and, and from a technical standpoint, that's pretty true. You know, all these modern cars with all this stuff that I, I heard, you know, there's this thing where you, when you come off the gas and it pops and crackles. I went to a car show with my son and everybody was like with big glee and delight listening to this thing go pop, 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 pop. I'm going, really? Is that, was that cool now? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> my cars don't do that. Damn. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I do know cars. You know, I know what it feels like to drive one. I know the difference between my silly little cars that I have, my old weird quirky cars and my minivan and my little my little modern you know mini and uh that's important you know i don't have to get lost in all that technical babble that that technical stuff a lot of times people make things very complicated because it makes them sound impressive you know and that's why another reason why i avoid it because man we go some in our in our design software we have about 1700 variables in our in our software that Bill Code designed for us to use, 1,700 vi variables that we can manipulate. And there's a few of them that are like, yes, no. But most of them are like, what airfoil do you want? I have hundreds of different airfoils we've played with. So it's an infinite number of things. And, and man, I can get lost in that technical stuff really easily with the few people here who can even begin to grasp it, the people who do the design work with me. There's, uh, right now there's uh, four people who are really heavily involved in that. And it's really fun being around those people. But um, to me, everybody's got a favorite tool and you got to make sure that you learn other ones. You know, One of the things you said is you don't want to say too much about it because everybody's different. But to a point, they're, yes, we're different. And because we're different, I want to hear somebody else's viewpoint because... You said, I need to be open. I need to learn from others. I need to, to put aside my expectations and say what I know, that my knowledge is my plateau on my cap. I don't know. I believe. Yeah. So I, w I really, uh, one of the other things you said is a lot of people will say, I'll get cosmic or don't want to hear this. Actually, I'm a few of our mutual friends. I'm, I'm glad you used that word because that stuck out to me too, cosmic. Yeah. A bunch of uh, our mutual friends heard that you were going to be on the show. And one of the things they said is he loves to talk about self-awareness and personal growth. He talks about it all the time. And they know how much we love that conversation because it is a conversation regular on our, t on our show. A and uh, they all said, you'll, you'll have such a good time. He does a great job talking about that. <laughs> so you're wrong. They do like hearing okay. it. Um, all right. But I, I'm really I've been curious. called out, I can see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm really curious. When, when you think of the word cosmic, like what, what does that mean to you? I, I some it depends because um, my version of that that word is I'll say it's woo woo hippie bullshit. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, like there's a there's a part of me that's that's kind of uh, embracing too much the cranky old guy that that I that I fear that I'm becoming, and that guy says the word cosmic with ridicule. Mm -hmm. Okay, like uh, there was a time in college as an example um, where I had taken this class. What was it called? The, the Human Potential Seminar. I was probably eight, 17, 18 at the time, probably just 18. And this HR, you know, student, whatever, assistance person, there was like, I don't know, eight or nine people in the class, but it was a credit and it was free. So what the hell? And uh, 
she began the class by saying the human potential seminar is based upon the concept that there's something right about you. And I said, oh my God, I never thought of that. Because I'm so embraced in trying to find the thing that's fucked up that I can fix. That's the way I lived back then, you know? And, uh, and it's, it's been a long trip since then. But, but at, one of the things they taught us was, was a type of meditation in that thing. And I got so blissed out and in, in the presence of what I thought at the time was unbelievable stress and pressure of college, the most <laughs> free place that you'll ever be in most cases. Mm-hmm. You know, I was taking a few classes, you know, I was taking calculus, but it was calculus for pilots, for God's sakes. It was calculus for dummies, you know? And uh, I was taking management class and it was like aviation management. It's like, come on, how, how tough is this, you know? And uh, I'd get stressed, you know? And I'd sit down on a pillow and I'd say, well, I'm stressed, I have some stressors, I'm just gonna sit down and sit on a pillow and close my eyes and do whatever, you know, gaze in my navel or something. And then at the end, <laughs> I'd feel good. And then I'd say, let's go to the beach. <laughs> and I never study. At some point, you got to do the shit, you know? So, so there's always, I, I always say to people that your solution to the problem usually becomes the next problem, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I am definitely into trying to find a blend of things that help me move forward. I'm always looking for coaches. I'm always looking for mentors. Mentors? Yeah. I want to be mentored, put it that way. And so there are, there are managers here at PD. There are people that I work with in designing parachutes. Um, of course, I mentor them. You know, I, I keep filling their heads with stuff that they have a name for. I'm not even going to tell you what the name is. Um, but uh, it's fun. It's, it's a headache. It's exhausting. And it's exhilarating all at once. And they help me you know, with, with my personal growth, partially and, and mostly by their example, you know? And so I, I, I'm always trying to, to find, like my brand of personal growth is to find the thing you're not aware of and then find how it, how becoming aware of it can serve you, even if it's something shitty. How do you do that? I haven't figured that out. Um, you pay attention. You listen to the thing that you resist. You um, you shut up, which is really hard for me. <laughs> um, you shut up the internal dialogue. And that is really what got me skydiving. Um, I don't know. How much time do we have? I, I, as I'd as love much as time. you want, my friend. I'd, I'd love to, to... I've never... I don't think I've ever told my first jump story you know in a place like this but it seems appropriate please um, do so you got to understand I, I was 16 years old i'd moved from through several different cultures you know i was in england and i was a little english boy had an english accent didn't know i had an english accent until i moved to southern california as a 9 year old <laughs> suddenly i discovered that i talked funny or so they say i was small i was wimpy and uh, people had a field day with me, and I learned how to manage that, you know, that school environment by basically becoming a real prick, an unpredictable, hostile little twerp, because the 
the bullies and stuff would leave me alone because I'd pull that shit in class because I was always liked by the teachers. I was engaged in school. I was enthusiastic about learning. I asked questions that that the 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 instructors admired. Like, wow, that little guy's really thinking this stuff through. And when a bully would want to like you know mess with me, I say, cut that shit out, you know, in the middle of the class, knowing that I'd probably get away with it, you know. So moved to Panama, and another culture shock. Everybody down there was engaged and enthusiastic in school, even the stoners. You know, they get, they get high out in front of the, a big 400-year-old oak tree, and they walk into class, you know, just smelling like, and, and down there, that was serious shit. You did not do that stuff, but they did it anyway. But they'd be engaged in school, totally different thing. And somebody on class, on the bus, first day of school, hey, new kid. And I'm going, oh, shit, here it comes. And they come over, I'm Dennis, who are you? And I say, I'm John. You know, it's like, oh, cool, where are you from? Where'd you come from? And suddenly the whole bus is all enthusiastic about the fact that there's a new kid on, in school. And I'm like, is this real? Like, these people are civil. So anyway, fast forward, I go through ninth, 10th, uh, 11th grade, friend of mine says, so uh, I'm going to go parachuting. If you are, if you get your parents' signature, you know, their approval, you can parachute. There's a club, you know, right here on base and you can do it. And I said, that'd be fun. I just thought I'm so, I was so into things that fly. I was model airplanes, kites, whatever. Um, Even built a hang glider with dowels and trash bags and <laughs> went down the hill in, in, in uh, the back of my house in California before that. Used my brother as a lab rat, too. <laughs> I figured it was a lighter wing loading. He'd probably do better than me. <laughs> but anyway, I said, sure, I'll do that. And, and I had no idea at the time how afraid I was of everything, every social situation. You know, of course, I was 16. A lot of people are like that when they're 16. But I was, like, completely lost in my head. Every nasty thing I told myself in my internal dialogue I thought was real and factual. And so we, I go through this week-long first jump course and learned about history of parachuting, learned how to pack, learned all about the progression that I would go through as a static line student. And uh, the driving age was 18 there, so my dad had to drive me to the drop zone. And um, it's my turn, first jump. We had a club club you know, round parachute. I had it packed, had my name on it. I threw it on and walked over to the, believe it or not, helicopter, the uh, a Huey. It was my first two jumps were out of a Huey static okay. line. Nice. And what's worse, it, it cost a quarter. Oh, man. <laughs> quarter, on the, quarter on the manifest table to buy the pilot's lunch. And then it was, this, this, you know, I got two that day. So, so I'm sitting in this helicopter and I'm pretty darn scared, right? But I lived in fear, basically. And I get my legs up and cross-legged and I protect my chest mount reserve and I'm looking around and there's all these, these military looking guys and they look like killing machines and they all look older than me because they were probably like 18 or 19. They were probably servicemen that were down there trying to do something different. And I'm sitting there and everything feels pretty normal. And to me, normal meant I was afraid. And then suddenly the grass squishes in front of me and the helicopter shakes, and then the grass just goes away. And I go, oh, my God. What the fuck was I thinking? 
I mean, and everybody everybody can relate to that that's made a first jump. Mm-hmm. But this is like a solo jump. The guy was going to say jump or go, and then he was going to watch. And I came, I became so overwhelmed with fear in one fell swoop. And this is this was not false. This was real. And and I thought to myself, I can't do this. There is no way I can do this. I do not have the cojones to jump out of this thing. What the fuck was I thinking? You idiot. How are you going to get yourself out of this one? And then I proceeded. Now, now get this. that The ride to altitude is going to take us all the way up to 2,800 feet. And it's a Huey, so it, it climbs pretty quick. They're going to drop a wind drift indicator. But other than that, there's no delay on the way up there. So the time to altitude was maybe five minutes You know, at, at military speed felt like about a half an hour. When you when you hear, if I were to give you the long version of the story, it would be a half an hour. My kids are so tired of hearing that story. <laughs> so um, so I start thinking, how the hell can I get out of this? And I knew that in the military, if you didn't jump, they pushed you. But they assured me that I was probably not going to want to jump and that that they would allow me to get back in the you know to get back in the airplane or the helicopter but that it's dangerous because you have a static line hooked up you've got reserve handle, handles you know when you go into the back we've got to unhook the static line so you get back there these two big doors it's dangerous so they're not going to want to really do it but they will so I'm looking around this this first jump master he's got these dark goggles on he's got he's all dressed in black he looks like a killing machine and I'm just going I got to come up with the cojones to yell no at him when he yells go at me. (laughs) Am I up for that? And then I started going down this rabbit hole inside my head, you know, and what's happening really in life is that this helicopter takes off in the Republic of Panama and there's the most incredible beauty in front of me. and I'm completely unaware of it. Stuck in my head going, can I get the cojones to say that? And I said, well, you know, you can't do this because you're such a little wimp. So Absolutely, you can find a place. So I convinced myself I could say no, and I practice it in my head. Go, no, go, no, go, <laughs> no. And, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going, okay, I think I got that. Well, what's next? Well, I'm going to look to the back, and I'm going to see all those killing machines looking at me going, you fucking pussy. <laughs> Jesus. And, of course, to me, they're fearless killing machines fear in them? No, not at all. And I thought, well, they probably knew I was a pussy anyway. I can probably handle that. And I don't know those guys anyway. I can, even though it's embarrassing and humiliating. And then I thought, okay, what's next? Well, they come down and then I, I get out of the helicopter. There's static line bags and stuff so I can look useful. I can pick those up and walk back. And then I thought to myself, fuck, my dad's down there. He's going to have a Super 8 camera in his hand. He's probably rattled off a full 50-foot reel of it, which is expensive, and filmed this guy land. And then he looked at him and said, that's not John. Can I handle that? And I saw in my mind's eye the look in his face, that, that realization, my son pushed out. And I went, well, my dad probably thought I was a pussy anyway. I mean, he must know. I mean, come on. He's been around me my whole life. <laughs> And I went, okay, so then I went, this is getting a little easier. I've gotten that far, you know, I've said no to that, you know, and this is all in my head. I'm probably, at, you know, I think that the streamer went out, the, the, the uh, 
the helicopter. Yeah. We're probably at, a, at you know, 2,000 feet, and we're going to go around again. And the instructor kind of, or the jump master, I think, said, pointed at me like, look at this. And I'm like, yeah, right, I'm going to look at that. I did kind of see where it went because I had a week long, you know, in the evenings jump course. I, I had the concept of what the streamer was supposed to do. It was going to drift downwind, and that's going to tell us how far to go upwind, right? It's the way they used to do it in the old days. So back to my my little headspace there, and I'm going, okay, so dad and I are going to drive home in complete silence. And then I'm going to, my mom is going to say, oh, John, did you jump? And I'd say, no. Well, what, were they not jumping? Well, was the weather bad? No, they were jumping. Oh, so did somebody take your parachute? No. Well, why didn't you jump? Because I'm a pussy. And my dad <laughs> say, just a second, no, 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 no. Shh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm like, I can handle that too, you know? I mean, because probably mom knew too. And then I thought, okay, my friend calls. He also took the, my best friend took the first jump course with me. And he's, uh, he's not, his dad isn't military, so he has to jump the civilian drop zone, Calzada Larga. So he was going to jump the next day. So I imagine him calling me and saying, well, you know, did you jump? I said, no, I pushed out. This is all in my imagination. I'm probably at like 2,200 feet by now because it, it, the imagination can run really fast, really wild. Um, that's not the kind of slowing down time you want, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought, well, you know, God, I don't know why he's my friend, but he is. So, you know, he, he knows. <laughs> and then I fast forwarded to going to school Monday morning. Of course, he would, of course, in my mind, he'd jump on Sunday because he's not a pussy. He'd just jump and it'd be no problem. So so then I'd go to school Monday morning and hang out where folks are smoking their cigarettes and whatever else they were smoking. And I'd be standing next to my friends out there at the tree trying to look like I'm not afraid. And, and somebody would say, Blanc, you go to cigarette? It's like, no, I don't. It's like, hey, did you guys jump? My friend was going to say, well, I jumped, but the Blanc pushed out. And then I went, Oh my God, I don't have what it takes to face those guys. Those big bullies will never let this go. I am so fucked, so fucked. What the hell am I gonna do? And by this time, I, I kind of hear the jump master go, you know, like coming on jump run and everything, and he's indicating to me, and I'm totally lost inside my head. I'm not a very nice place at this point. And all, all of a sudden, I, I looked out at the horizon. I saw some mountains. I saw some sky, not a whole lot else. And, and I just went, I am so fucked here. It's like, it's like what the hell am I going to do here? I said, if I jump, it'll be over. I can't jump, but if I jump, it'll be over. But if I don't jump, it'll never be over. And then I had this image of being like in my 70s or something ancient like that, sitting in a rocking chair and having my friend Jeff come up and saying, hey, Bell, uh, I want you to meet my friend John. You remember I told you back in high school that I had a friend that pussed out when he, and, and I went, no way, you know? And I said, if I jump, it'll be over. If I don't jump, it'll never be over. And then I said, I gotta do this. And right at that time, I heard complete silence. And I saw the Panama Canal. I saw, I looked to my right and I saw the Gatun locks and a big super, not super tanker, but a big tanker coming through. I saw the Bridge of the Americas. I saw the Pacific Ocean. I looked down and I saw the drop zone coming towards me. I saw the, the uh, Quarry Heights where I used to live. And I looked around and it was complete silence. And then I heard something else. 
blah, 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 blah. I looked up and I saw rotor blades. First time I heard the helicopter right then. And I'm sitting there and it's completely silent. And I am alive and calm. And I go, what the fuck just happened to me? There was something. There was something. I had my knickers in a twist in a big way about what the fuck was it? And I'm sitting there and I'm searching the voice inside my head and it wasn't saying shit. It was kind of like the little brat kid that was holding its breath, turning red, hoped that it would get some attention. It was freaking quiet up there and I just was sitting there. And I just said, come on, think, think, think. And I struggled and I eventually came up with this, what I would call a mental construct of this place called school and this concept called bullies. And I struggled to, to grasp the magnificence of, the, of that. And I just went, whatever. And I'm sitting there in complete silence inside my head. And I'd never heard that noise before. I said, what the hell is that? It was silence. And I look over and see the jump master. And I realize he's going to say jumper up in just a little while. I can see the drop zone coming. He's looking out the window. He's spotting you know, out the door. And I said, the next thing he's going to say is prepare to exit. And I get into this position that I was taught to do in this helicopter. And, and so I'm seeing my body go through this. And there's absolute silence other than the environment around me. And then he said, jump or go. And I, I said to myself at that point, I did remember saying to myself, if he says, how are you doing or whatever, I'm gone. Because if I even hesitate once, because I was still... I would call it fearful, like really, you know, fearful of the unknown, but there was quiet about it in my head. And so he said, jump or go, and I left, and then I got to figure out what sensory overload was. At least <laughs> I rationally thought about it afterwards. I don't remember anything of the little free fall. I remember seeing a flicker of parachute somewhere during the opening, and that was it. And, uh, and then I landed, and, and uh, I heard this... <laughs> you have an open canopy, turn left. And I went, huh, who, uh, what? Oh, yeah, that's right. There's a radio there. And I turned the parachute around and then he said, you know, and then I looked around, oh yeah, there's a drop zone down there. And I landed, I landed close and everything was pretty easy with those parachutes. They didn't go very far and spotting was good. And I landed and uh, I was just blown away by the, the exterior silence of being under that round parachute. And I landed, took my helmet off, walked over to my dad who was smiling and uh, he, um, my instructor said, congratulations, you made your first parachute jump. You forgot your dummy ripcord, dummy. And that went right over my head. There's, there was like a dummy ripcord to pull right from the start. And I didn't even know it was there until he mentioned that. And uh, he said, you want to go again? And I looked at my dad. And he was pretty thrilled with the whole thing. And he's felt my boy's a man now, you know. <laughs> and my dad said, why not? It's free. And I thought, you know, that jump cost a quarter. If I make another one, that jump was 12 and a half cents. So, <laughs> so I said, I thought about it for a little while, and I said, yeah. Now, the, the jump master, my instructor told me that the second jump was going to be scarier than the first because you know what to expect. And I'd been through quite an ordeal, but it was largely mental. You know, the actual jump was not that big a deal. I mean, it was. I mean, it was life-changing, but... When I think back about that, I wondered why I made that second jump. And really what it was is I wanted to know what that noise was. 
that silence in my head. I wanted to know what that was, so I went again. And that one, I didn't perform any better. I got to see the same sensory overload, but I discovered what it was. I was a virgin at the time, and I, uh, there, I was also wondering about what it would be like to get laid, because everybody who was talking about it you know, really thought it was cosmic. Of course, I told all my friends I was getting laid all the time because I was 16. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that, um, is that I, uh, I thought about it. It was this flickering orange. And I said, wow, sensory overload is really cool. I can't wait to get laid. <laughs> it's going to be really cool. <laughs> And then I realized, after a few jumps, what that was. I had a weak exit from the, from the helicopter. I rolled over onto my back with my eyes closed. And I was staring through my eyelids at the sun underneath the rotor blades, which caused the orange to flicker. I was very proud of myself discovering that. So this whole idea about awareness, self-awareness and stuff, Skydiving for me has been nothing but that for a long, long time is becoming aware of what you're clueless about. And you can use that, I use it as a metaphor for life. You know, throw yourself just a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And that puts you in the present moment where you feel alive. It's not comfortable, but you feel alive. And the alternative is to, is to, is to retreat from the things that agitate you or that make you afraid and you feel comfortable and the world closes in on you when you do that. And uh, that's in anything. I mean, that's in what you choose to do in your workplace and not choose to do. Whether you, um, you know, mindlessly surf and stuff that's probably not good with you for you on the, on the internet because you're, you're tired or whatever, or whether you go after something that, that challenges you. Um, you know, uh, I heard somebody say that um, your comfort zone is like a fur-lined rut. It's huh. comfortable. I don't know who said that, but it was really cool. That one stuck with me. And so to me, like when, I, when I'm here at work and I'm facing something that I find intimidating, a situation or a, a challenge, a challenging person, a challenging uh, design issue, uh, a customer service issue, whatever, and I get that, you know, come on, John, don't lose your shit, you know, keep it together, you know, don't, you got to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable with something, stay here, stay aware, you know, and they'll jump in your head and cogitate about it, stay aware and see what's going on, and, and it works out, you know, so that's my first jump story, and that's how I use kind of that thing as a metaphor for life, it was pretty weird, after that, because I was still afraid at school and I still hopped into my head and listened to the internal dialogue. But every once in a while, I'd be in a situation where these people would be intimidating me or whatever, and I'd, I'd, I never said it to them, but I'd say to myself, look, you think you're such a big shot and you're so intimidating and stuff. I know you're scared of something. The fact is, is I'm scared of a bunch of stuff, but I jump out of fucking airplanes, buddy. <laughs> you know? Like... You'd be scared too with that. And I felt myself strangely in alignment with the bully. Like, yeah, that shit would scare you too. So we have something in common, right? You know, but I'm doing it. You know, you're like, I'd always wanted to do that, man. You know, and uh, so, so I kept with this idea when I was afraid that at least I jump out of airplanes and that's pretty shallow. But I was like 16, 17, and eventually in college or something, I started realizing, you know, you can't make every kind, every conversation twisted into a, 
uh, a casual mention of the fact that you jump out of airplanes and it's like that's really shallow so you gotta you gotta kind of go on to something else but you know what it was the first step for me to to move forward and kind of get a life i guess you know Skydiving has meant so much to me, and I want to make a, a couple points that help me out a lot and really want to get your take on these. And one of the things that I've done in my life is I've embraced skydiving. I am an examiner. I train instructors. I have a team of examiners. And ultimately, my goal is one thing with the sport is to hope that others can get what they want out of it, but what they don't know they don't want out of it. And for me, I've met my best friends, I've met my wife, but I have ultimately become a much more aware and better human being through the sport. And that came through, you and I have a very similar problem. This doesn't shut up. This doesn't stop. It's a thousand miles an hour. And skydiving taught me to live in the here and now. And over time, I'm like, how is this this working? What the fuck's going on in my head that allows me to be at peace for once? And I learned over time that fear is a great thing. It wouldn't be fun if there wasn't fear. And then I learned, wait a minute, fear empowers me. Wait a minute, I'm going to embrace the fear. I'm going to use the fear. And then a buddy of ours, Jay Stokes, would tell people, we're both afraid. The difference is is your butterflies are button heads and my butterflies are flying in formation. Cool. And I took that thought a little bit deeper for, for me. And I'm like, wait a minute, because in fear, I say, what if? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And every time you ask yourself, what if, answer yourself. Well, what if I have a malfunction? Well, I look red, grab red, look silver, pill punt, right? Answer yourself. What if this, I'm going to do this. What if this, I'm going to do this. And I learned to, instead of let those thoughts consume me, to have that crazy two-person conversation in my head and actually answer myself. So actually using fear and answering the questions, because we're all full of questions. Answer them. And don't be afraid to be wrong, because yeah. being wrong means you're one step closer to finding out what's right. With my kids, I used to often, instead of tell them what to think or what to do, I, I rarely did that. I, I asked them to entertain the idea that X. Try this on. Because then it's, 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 a, it's an act that they take on willingly if they choose. It's not something that they feel they must because some person in authority has told them. And it was kind of scary as a parent because we did that way to a huge extreme. But my kids, I mean, every parent is usually, every decent parent has something about their kids that they just think is the greatest thing ever. But man, they're, the people in this community are always telling me how grounded and, and real my kids are. And I think the reason is because they had the time to sort stuff out for themselves. And what you were saying about the fear, um, that it, you said it, it inspires you. Is that what the word the word you used? I'm not sure if that was the word I used. I, I don't remember what it was, but anyway, it, you used it. you used it positively. Yeah. You know, it it, it, it it's a call to action. Me. It motivates you. It can also paralyze paralyze you. Mm-hmm. It can intimidate you into inaction. And the fact is, is that it is what you make of it, and and it's a conscious or unconscious or subconscious decision. And I think that. Um, that learning that 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 things don't and things don't necessarily mean something you were told they mean. A big part of meaning comes from the meaning you make out of things. You know, two people can have the same experience, and they tell a story about it. And the story is where they find the meaning. And the the stories are different. 
you know, the, the, the obvious one is, is uh, this guy, what's his name, um, Victor Frankl, who spent time in, in a concentration camp. And his thing, his reason for moving forward and surviving that was that he had to survive so that he could tell the story of this so that it wouldn't be repeated again. And he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. I got to admit, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've seen plenty of, of excerpts from it. And he was with people, a lot of which who, who died, but some of them who lived, who came out of that experience saying that people are shit. You can't trust them. I'm scarred for life. That's not what, what Victor Frankl said. You know, he, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. That's, that's what he lived for, was to search for meaning. Not necessarily that it's inherent in something, although some of it must be, but it's a, it's a conscious act for him. And so two people, same basic experience, completely different meaning that they draw from it, and therefore a completely different life as a result. So to me, the power of choosing you know, like just grabbing onto the power of choosing. I think that was, maybe that was one of the things in, in, uh, in the airplane, in the helicopter that caused me to actually jump. You know, a friend of mine, a really cool guy, he, he said that it's amazing that it was, it was fear of being cast out that actually drove me to jump. Because there was a lot of reasons. I mean, I just said, I'm not going to do this, right? And then eventually I got around to the point where the fear of not doing it became so big that I chose to do it. It was the fear of being looked at like an idiot. And that's, that's really kind of weird to think that that's what got me out of it. But the thing is, is there was a choice that I made on how I was going to handle that. And, and the fear pretty much disappeared at that point. And, and so to me, um, to consciously choose the meaning you're going to get from something, you know, when, when something big happens in your life, you know, and, and people can be kind of callous about that. You know, it's not my right. It's not necessary for me to, to give you a meaning for something that happens in your life. The one that I think symbolizes that most is when somebody has an accident and they kill themselves, you know, it's like, that sucks. I hate it. When somebody says, well, he died doing what he loved. Well, I guess that's true, but I, they'd prefer to keep doing it, right? And, and it, it doesn't rationalize or make anything better for me. So I don't ever give that meaning to somebody's death. But if it helps other people to move on, hey, you know, that's fine. I'm, kind, I'm fine with it. I don't want anybody to say that I died doing something I love if that's the way I go. You know, I want them to have a big party and tell stories, you know, good or bad. I don't care, you know. It's uh, the other thing in this conversation you just had is a thing I value highly is thought stopping. Do you have a, a, an opinion, a process with thought stopping? Yeah, there's a couple that I picked up on some, uh, some courses I took. Um, number one is you can create something to tell yourself that is kind of your go-to place. It, 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 re, it resets you. I've, I have one friend that always says, nope, stop, reset, reset going to go somewhere else with those thoughts. Um, one thing that I was taught in a seminar is when you have some weird twisted thought that's not going to serve you, you imagine it comes from your upper right or your upper left side, like it's, a, it's coming into a screen. 
And then you look up and over to the upper left side and you say, oh, thanks for sharing that. But, and then you say your intention. So it's, it's as if the, the internal vocalizing mechanism has nothing to do with you. It's just a thought that dropped into your head. A vocalizing mechanism uttered these words and you happened to hear them. It was as if somebody on the street said something strange and you heard it. You know, it's, you don't have to, you don't have to engage with the vocalizing mechanism inside your head. It's, it's, it's verbalizing stuff that is often nonsense and you can just erase it. I, I also call it shaking the etch-a-sketch. Ah, I like that version. Yeah. Cause you know, if you, it, things are simple as a kid, you know, and if you don't like it, just shake it. It's gone. <laughs> twiddle, twiddle the knobs again a different way. <laughs> So you uh, you talked about being a dad. I didn't know whether you, you had kids or not. Yeah, I got three three kids. I, I wonder what uh, someone who's who's so obviously self reflective. If you have a favorite part about being a dad, that's a that's a huge that's a huge thing. Um, I think I think the nice thing that, that one of the best things about being a dad is to come to terms with the fact that that you are a huge influence on your kids as, as the mom is a huge influence, but you're not the only influence. They live in a society. They live in a world. You cannot, you cannot tell them what to think about things and to do so incessantly is harmful. You need to let them think about things on their own and you need to encourage that. And I think that there's a lot of fearful parenting now because you want your kids to not make the stupid mistakes you did. And you certainly don't want them to get hurt. And so there's an overprotectedness of kids. There's a worry on parents' faces that's never talked about between the parents and the kids. And the kids see it. The kids are way smarter. The, the children are way smarter than then we give them credit for it. We think the first time they utter a few words that they finally learned how to understand the English language. They understood the English language and concepts or whatever language they speak way earlier than that. My, my uh, ex-wife is German and we decided that she would speak German to the kids when they were growing up and I would speak English to them. And then when we were together, I, I, my German sucks, so we'd, we'd speak English. And my kids learned two languages simultaneously. We didn't teach them that. They figured it out. They figured out how to walk. They figured out how to talk. They can figure out immense, amazing things if you just provide a supportive environment for them to figure it out. And that's what we did. We went completely bonkers crazy on that stuff. We went to, uh, we never sent them to school. We did what people would call homeschool, but it was extremely kind of free range. They got a huge amount of freedom. It wasn't leniency. It was freedom to discover and explore on their terms. And part of the environment they were in was their parents liking it or not liking it. And that was one of the things that, that influenced their behavior. But we rarely dominated that. We never said, it's time to go to bed now. Almost never. You know, we let them discover what it's like to be fatigued and irritable at night. 
you know, it, it, it was really amazing. And as a result, my kids are, in my opinion and those around me, are so together. They're so wise. I mean, one of my mentors is, is my, definitely my oldest son, but the other two as well. You know, it's unbelievable the stuff that comes out of their mouth to me. They're now uh, 18, 21, 22, I think, 21, 22, oh, it's soon to be 22, and 25. And like when they say, hey, Dad, you want to go get a beer? They want to get a beer with Dad. You know, it's not, there's no like, uh, I really need to see my dad. I haven't seen him for a while. I really got to. No, it's they, they want to hang out with dad. And when they don't want to hang out with dad, they don't. You know, they're, to me, the, a lot of parenting is too restrictive. It's um, the parents can't say yes, particularly the dad, particularly with the boys in the family. Hey, dad, can we? No, you didn't make your bed last week, you know, or whatever. You know, it's like iron fist kind of, you know, teach them the right, teach them the right straight and narrow. And, and, you know, if that works, I mean, it did, it was really necessary in the days of, you know, in, you know, 100, 200 years ago, you might say, boy, come here slowly because there is a bear around the corner, <laughs> you know? So it was important to have obedience. And I think, I think that obedience now is, is overrated. Having a kid do what he's told to do all the time means that he's never thought for himself very much, other than to search his memory banks for what he was supposed to memorize. So we didn't do that, and it was scary, terrifying, scary as parents. And they put the world together in a way that makes so much sense to me, and I learn from them all the time as a result. It was amazing, and it is amazing. You know, I've got my... my. Uh, my middle child, um, he loves flight. And for his sixth birthday, he said, he said, what do you want for your birthday? And he goes, I want to fly a glider. I'll fly a glider. And he did. He went out and took, a, took an introductory flight and flew the glider. Owned it. Chest out, the whole thing. When he was 14, he had a chance to, uh, to take sailplane lessons. He... Uh, he had to write an essay to get a scholarship for half of it. And I told him if he did that, I would, uh, I'd pay for the other half. And that was the first time I ever saw him really write anything. Like, you know, on his own, write because he wanted it. And in four and a half days, he soloed a glider as a 14-year-old. And then blew it off a little bit later because I didn't want him to, but he did. So he, he did. A little bit later, he got, it, he got his private pilot's license. You know, and my older kids, I just, my, I had friends that say, I can't believe it. They're, they're not flying. They're, Daddy's got airplanes and they just don't care. And they, they don't seem much interested in skydiving. It's like, what is this? And I say, hey, you know, they're living their life on their terms. And then my, my oldest, about a year and a half ago, decided he was going to learn how to fly. He wants to do it for a living. And bam, he's doing it. You know? So, so the, the strict parent can't say yes. And the, the uh, how do I say it, the, the, the lenient parent can't say no. But in either case, the kid is saying, Mom, Dad, can I? So one, one teaches the kid about chaos. The answer is always yes, and he doesn't know what to do with it because it wasn't his choice. It was his mom or dad's choice to say, yeah, 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 go, go, go. And the strict parent, he can't say yes. All he can do is say no, and there's always this pulling hard on the leash. If you're seeing those kids with the, uh, the, the, the leash, yeah. they're always pulling on it. Let the leash go. And the kid's going to 
wonder, what the hell was that? It's called freedom. And then he's going to go 10 or 15 feet away, and he's going to go, where's everybody? Where is everybody? Oh, they're over there, and they're gonna, it's going to come back and hang out. Now, if you do that too late, they're going to run a long way. You know, but if, if you start early, if you start with your, with your infant when he, can, when he can crawl on the front yard, he'll learn about the street and cars. You be there, watch, you know. It's, it's just a different, a different way. And, and so um, I, I sometimes am sad when I see kids and they're expressing wonder about something. They're looking at something. And I, I see that and I want to like, I want to latch into that because to me that's part of life is to re-instill that sense of wonder in things. And there was this kid at a party at our house back when I was married and, and uh, this kid was on his haunches looking at a map of the world underneath our, our uh, like underneath like a bar kind of thing. And he's looking at it and the parents are talking about all kinds of stuff. The kids are running around. He's just looking at this map. And I just became drawn to him, and he, and I said, "So, uh, what you looking at?" And he goes, "Antarctica, man." <laughs> I said, "Really, Antarctica? Cool." And he said, "I said so. Why Antarctica?" And he goes, "It's so big." I said, "Yeah. What else?" And he goes, "Well, it's." It's just cold there, and it's 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 really cool. I'd like to I'd like to see it someday. And I said, really? And I said, what about the Antart? What about the Arctic? And he goes, nah, no, not the Arctic. And I said, well, what's different about the Antarctic and the Arctic? And he goes, oh, well, the Antarctic has uh, penguins, and it's a landmass, and the Arctic is just a piece of ice and blah, 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 blah. And he went right into school kid regurgitating the answers that he was told to memorize. And I thought, ah, damn it. I just killed it. I killed that sense of wonder, you know? So to me, the, the, the more you constantly tell a kid what to think and, and you judge and assess everything that comes out of his mouth, the more he, his world is trying to either please or rebel against the people around him. You ask a kid what he thinks these days, and, some, and and you can see they're in fear, searching their memory banks for something to say that they were supposed to have memorized that you will find worthy of saying. And I just don't think that's the way to spend a childhood. So we didn't do that with our kids to the best of our ability, and I wish others would too. It's scary, though. It's really fucking scary. I bet. I mean, giving, because you're kind of, feels like you're giving up some of your freedom to to. Give to them, right? I'm sure that's a, a feeling you get. There are freedoms I'm giving up, but it's it's really not that much freedom. You're actually getting more freedom than you're giving up. It, there's a constant battle between parents and their children. When they come home from school and they're overwhelmed, and they just want to, like you do when you come home from work sometime, for most people anyway, you want to detox. You want to sit on the couch, crack up in a beer, and watch something mindless on TV or whatever, just for a little while. Then you'll get up and pay the bills or whatever. You know, a kid feels that way too when he comes home from school. You know, with the kind of things that go on in school, it's, it's, it's a tough load. Do your homework before you, you know, get online or whatever. And, and then there's this, this mistrust. Did you really do your homework? And it's like the, the, the relationship. There's obviously some good stuff in all those relationships, but there's such a, a coating of 
dysfunction on it like that. And it's, it's, people say, well, I'm preparing them for the real world. Well, I, it's not the world I live in, you know? I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just a different view and it is scary. And, and people think, some people think I'm so nuts, so nuts for doing what we did. Um, I, you know, I, it, it wasn't fun to have my kids up and making noise when I was, when I was wanting to sleep. But, you know, I said, we gave them total freedom. You know, they have total freedom, but so do I. So I can get up outside and I can say, look, I'm trying to sleep. Take this somewhere else. Simple as that. Because if I just let them do what I wanted them to do, you know, what they wanted to do and it annoyed me and I didn't say anything, that's that parent that can't say no. Yeah, that's that enabler that we yeah. all hate so as a result, store. as a result, they're powerful in their own way. I remember one time I... I was tired of them not pitching in around the house. And, and my middle son, I think he was probably, I'm guessing, 10, 11, 12. And he was the one that was very outgoing, always volunteered for stuff. When somebody on the stage said, me, we have a volunteer, his hand went up. And uh, I just wanted him to do something around the house. We had this big pool and this big house and all this stuff. And I was just tired of not getting help. And I, he wanted to go do something. I think it was go surfing. And I, I, I created this, this little, I don't have much time to go surfing. If you help me around the house, if you clean the pool while I mow the lawn, then we'll have time to go surfing this evening. But if you don't, then I won't have time to go surfing. I'll have to do it all or some. And it was bullshit. It was just bullshit. He was aware enough that he could see it was bullshit. And so I'm, you know, we, we were real clear with them that they had total freedom, but so did we. And we, whenever their, our freedoms collided, we would discuss it. And he said, oh, okay. Like, so you want me to clean the pool, huh? And I said, well, I'd like you to, yeah. Your choice. And he goes, I have a choice. Do I really have a choice? And I said, well, yeah, you know, you have a choice. And he goes, well, explain to me the choice. And then I went through the same thing again. And... He said, you call that a choice? I said, well, yeah, I don't get this. You explain to me. And he goes, well, what I wanted to do is I want to get online and game with some friends. I got a couple in Japan. I got a couple in Europe. And there's only a certain time that we can all get together when they're all awake. They go to school, Dad. Not like me. Not like you. And he goes, and that happens in half an hour. And we're going to do it for two hours. And I orchestrated it all. It's something that I created. And I want to do it. And if I, if I clean the pool, I won't be able to do that. I'll let down those people and I won't be happy. And he said, and if I, if I do this, if I do this game and I don't clean the pool, you're never going to let me forget it. You're going to be a jerk about it. And I said, no, I'm not. And he goes, Really? And I don't know the specific words, but it was said with concern and care. So I didn't think of it as, as like, don't backtalk your dad or anything. I said, I, I'm not going to do that. And he goes, really? You're not going to basically never let me forget that I didn't clean the pool? And I said, no. He said, so you think I really have a choice? And I said, yes. And he goes, okay, thank you. And he went off and played his game. 
Uh, I left the pool. <laughs> I mowed the lawn. I left the pool. And uh, I think I went surfing some other day. But the thing is, is he called me on my bullshit in a way that I could get it. What, what 10-year-old can do that with his parent? I think he was about 10. You know, and, and some people would say, you freaking have no backbone. Your kids are going to go crazy. They're going to just go completely crazy. No, they don't. People who've raised their kids like this, very few of them go crazy. The ones that do are the ones that are actually those parents that can't say no. You know, so it's been a gas, you know, it's been a total gas. They've done some amazing shit, too. I love how you explain a lot of that because I, I look at that. I, Nick and I are both what we call non-breeders. I have no desire to have kids. I'm 46 years old. My wife and I have been together 17 years. So we feel pretty comfortable with the decision we've made. I, I just want to interject that I, I can still really enjoy these conversations just to better understand my relationships with my parents. And that's, yeah. that's, that's why I like digging into it. That's cool. That's cool. It's, uh, so I, I will never get that from the, the, the parent side. And from the child side, it is very interesting because my father and my mother are very uh, devout Christians. They're very conservative and, and I want to say strict, but they were very, very, man, free. Not, not to the degree that you've described. But over my life, I've used that as a model of leadership. When people come in, and guys, I have a very small company. My business is not a lot of us. When a guy asks me about doing something, it's commonly like, well, can we? Are you, are you willing to? Do you want to? Why should we? Why shouldn't we? Hey, DJ, how do I deal with this problem? Well, what do you think? And I love that open format yeah. conversation. Yeah. It's important to model that with, with your children. If they go, Dad, why is blah, 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 or what do you think about this? It's completely cool, and it's beneficial for you to say, huh, I haven't thought of that. Let me think about that. And then they see you not having an answer that somebody told you to memorize, and they see you thinking for yourself. And then you say, I wonder if maybe this or that. No, I don't think so. Well, how about I don't know. What do you think? And next thing you know, you have a conversation where the two of you are testing ideas and, and hypotheses and, and kind of figuring it out. And then when you're done, you may have a, this is the way I'm going. Or you might have, hmm, that might, I might try that out and be aware of how well it's working and be alert for the, perhaps the need to, to modify. That's a great thing to do with your kids. And I think sometimes parents feel they have to in invent an answer very quickly and it has to be a good lesson for them. Kids very often don't listen to the lectures we give them, but they watch us. They say, we're going to be leaving in five minutes. And they go, you're talking to your best friend. You're talking gossipy stuff. We're not leaving in five minutes. So they keep playing half an hour later. Kids, we got to go. It's like, Okay, maybe another 15. And then a little bit later, oh, I've got to go, I've got to go, I'm so late. Okay, come on, let's go. And then they say, okay, we're finally leaving now. So then they wonder when they're told, you know, the parents wonder when they're told, five minutes and you got to go up and brush your teeth. They wonder why the kids don't go up and brush their teeth. Because they watched your behavior and they imitate it, they emulate it, which is really cool, but it's also, it really pisses me off because I've got to behave in accordance to my own aspirations. And there's a part of me that goes, nah, not tonight. And they're watching. 
Same thing with employees, not that employees are children by any stretch of the imagination, but, but you do things in a workplace, especially if you've got some authority and things are going well and you're kind of like, oh, I'm so tired. Just going to check out some YouTube videos. We'll look at skydiving stuff, so I'll call it business. No. They, they see that shit. You know, they see that shit. I am... Um, <coughs> oh, man. It's... Oh, man, I lost my thought in that cough. It went away. Nick, what did you have? Oh, I was... Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. But uh, I wonder if you have... I wonder what it's like when, when your kids give back to you. Like when you say that you have these conversation conversations where you feel like you're being mentored by by your kids. Do you do you, do you realize how? I mean, for, to me, I think that that's super neat that it's come full circle that you've brought this person into the world and you've taught them to navigate it in a way that they have acquired knowledge that is now valuable to you. God, I don't even know how to wrap my brains around that without like losing my shit emotionally. <laughs> but um, it's the same thing with with any interaction with any person in some ways, you know, when, when you're with somebody and you're having a discussion and then you discover something as a benefit of that, that's the one thing that people don't get to bring it back to the skydiving thing. When somebody comes up to me and they get the courage to ask this question of this guy that supposedly knows everything about parachutes, and we've talked about that, right? And they ask this question. I very often ask them questions about the question because I want to know where they're coming from because it's, it's important for me to understand where they're coming from because it's a different place than where I'm at. I've been playing, I've built thousands of prototypes and done crazy, crazy stuff with parachutes. My idea of what a parachute is is just different, as is the people that work here and have worked here doing the stuff that we do with parachutes with me. And it's, it's really grounding for me to listen to somebody that's been skydiving for a year tell me about the world of skydiving. And it, and, it, and it means a lot to me. I learn a lot when people ask questions. There's always some sort of basic understanding or beliefs that they have that I'm pretty clueless about in many cases. And so I delve into that. It's really beneficial for me to, to have a conversation with somebody who has a different viewpoint on things because of their experiences and their beliefs are different. And it doesn't matter whether they're a world champion and I want to know how do they get the self-discipline to get up and make 14 jumps a day in the stinking hot weather and get up at five in the morning and work out before every time. And like, you know, I learned from that. And at the same time, when I, I learned from somebody who is in their 60s and decided to take up skydiving again after they made 20 or 30 jumps in in uh, in college in the 70s on round parachutes you know it's 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 all meaningful to me you know i i choose to find meaning in things and and so bringing it back again to my kids um it's it's always surprising i think the main thing is that if you if you entertain the possibility that there's wisdom in their years that's beyond our concept of it that it makes a difference. Have you never noticed the first time, and, and of course, if you're a parent, you'll notice this, but the first time a kid uses a cuss word, they use the correct cuss word in exactly the right situation, and they put it in a sentence in the right place, and they use exactly the right intonation and emphasis on that word like they've been using it their whole life. First time you hear it. Because they live in the world. It's way easier 
for them to pick up on the way the world works if we just let them explore, you know? And you get, you, you, you get in touch with that. I remember one time my kids, my, one of my kids, I'm not going to tell you which one, he used the word penis. And uh, our midwife told us to just start naming things point it and name it and just keep doing that. And then eventually they'd start talking, you know, and he looked down at himself and said, penis. And, <laughs> and I just went, yep. <laughs> and I thought, when the hell did he point at a penis? And then I said what it was like, when was that? It must've been like a year or two ago. Like he hasn't said a word, like where did that come from? And then I thought, he watches and integrates and takes in every freaking thing around him. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think if you bring that to the skydiving community, some of the things that the people who are extremely talented do to test their, their ability to get away with shit, you know, at a certain point, that, in, that without their intention, it encourages other people to do stupid shit that they get hurt at. So, so I think that, um, at some point you, uh, at some point in your skydiving career, hopefully you, you have, you start having a little responsibility for the things you do and choose not to do. Um, you know, because you, you care about the community. Uh, I mean, sometimes I've been on the way to altitude and I'm near the door because I'm usually, you know, doing a test jump and, you see the pilot turn around and talk to somebody and then word gets passed down and then somebody stands up and says, it's gusting to 27 knots down there. And everybody's kind of, their eyeballs get big and round and we're going to altitude and nobody's saying anything. We're still heading to altitude. And then I get up on my knees and I thought, this is a time where perhaps I can say something. And I get up and I go, you know, you don't really have to jump we can fly the airplane down. And then depending on the, what I see, I say, you know, in fact, I'm thinking about it myself. Next thing you know, the load flies down, you know, like it's not that hard to be the first guy to say something like that. But if I said you, you have 200 jumps and you're at a wing loading of 1.25341 and that's too much <laughs> for flying with your experience, little boy, you know, it's like that doesn't work. Cause I took the, I took the choice away from them. You know, it's like you either accept it or rebel against it. And there's only so much usefulness with that. On the other hand, uh, years, years before in the DC three, we took off and, and we were at about 1600 feet and the left engine started making weird noises and fire started coming out of it. And in those days, people were pretty aloof in the airplane. They were slopping around and half their gear was not even on and they all bolted up like this real, real big and their eyeballs got big around and I was again near the door. This is before I was um, involved in test jumping and stuff, but I was just there. It might've been about the same time and something came over me and I stood up because I know about center of gravity and airplanes and stuff. I'm an aerodynamic nut, right? I stood up and my biggest big boy voice, I put my hand out in front of me like I was a cop and I said, stay seated. And everybody like suddenly calmed down and I went, wow. I did that. It's amazing. <laughs> I was probably like 18, 19 years old, and I looked up at the pilot like I was like the jump master or something, and, and we landed the airplane. Everybody was cool. But people start moving towards the door when a DC-3 engine quits at 1,600 feet. That is not a good time for the pilot. 
you know, and the last thing I wanted him to do was to come towards me. You know, it's like, I kind of want to be in the back of the bus when the thing goes upside down. It Sometimes there's a need for decisive direction, especially in the case of training new people to do things like in first jump courses and, and what have you. Um, sometimes it's necessary to say, I don't know, what do you think? And let them struggle with it a bit. Just maybe not in a time where the airplane's about to crash? No, no. <laughs> there, there's an adage, you know, if something goes wrong, first thing, fly the airplane. I've had a couple of engine failures um, in, in either my airplanes or or, uh, or uh, partial failures in, in a jump plane at one point that I was flying. And, uh, and that fly the airplane thing, because I'm so much into the visceral experience and be aware, don't, don't be caught by something you're not noticing, um, that's the most important thing, fly the airplane. So I got it back to the runway safely um, every time. And there were lots of things on a checklist that I didn't get to. But to get to those things and quit flying the airplane would have killed me. So, yeah, I could have done a lot better, but I did the right things right. I did the important things right. Did we decide what episode number we were on? Did we get to that earlier? 132. 132. So I just, just to put this uh, in perspective, uh, we've done 132 of these episodes. I've, I've never listened to one of them. And I've, I've never sat during the, ep- the end of an episode thinking, I want to go back and listen to that. This is the first episode that I will absolutely go back and, and listen to. And uh, just to address kind of the uh, trepidation you had when I think we both kind of separately invited you to, to get down some of, the, some of these deeper rabbit holes. <laughs> that uh, if, if anyone who listens to the show, you know, values any of the things that we talk about or that we're interested in, this is exactly what, what I'm interested in. Wow. So, so I really want to thank you for, for, uh, for sharing all that That's stuff. That's cool. The, the best thing for me is I get to listen to it too. So I get to not only hear what you guys said, but I get to hear what came out of my mouth. Cause that, you I know, said that? that, that being <laughs> the moment thing, I mean, um, you know, people, you know, when I get off of a stage and I do a seminar or something or they're a question and answer thing, especially they go, that was so cool. I liked the part about, and I said, I said that, did I, <laughs> I, I really, you know, I, like I said, I'm not a man of few words and, and <laughs> I'd probably be a better man if I was, but, uh, I, I enjoy these types of talks and, uh, these discussions and thank God I was able to embrace the fact that we're just, you know, four guys sitting around having a talk and kind of forgot about the fact that there's going to be listeners out there. But, uh, the one thing I hope dip- there's something that people get from it. Oh, I'm positive. I, I think this will be one of our uh, most liked, most respected, most uh, requested episodes. I say requested after the fact. People will always recommend it is the word I was trying to look for. And I don't think it's because your name is John LeBlanc, and I don't think it's because you work at Performance Designs. I think our audience loves our two favorite shows our audience loves. Number one, a young lady named KDP was recently on the show, <laughs> and do not let your mother listen to that. You will be embarrassed. That's a pretty stark contrast. KDP, you yeah, said? Yeah, yeah, you know KDP? I don't know if I do or not. Very, I'm bad very, with names. She's a very wonderful young lady, very vulgar. She's one of the smartest people I know, and you know that that eccentric mind that can go crazy? Uh-huh. The second, the other favorite type that uh, our fans always just absolutely love and, and I hear a lot about is what you've talked about today. So I, I really appreciate you being here. Our fans actually sponsored this trip. I say sponsored this trip. Uh, our listeners, we, we gave a little call out, and they were like, hey, we're going to help you get there. And they've actually already told us they want us to come back again. They want us to do a trip again. So next time we come, we'll, we'll invite you again, and next time you know, we can just start on the cosmic hippie, hippie <laughs> bullshit from the beginning. Well, well, I have a message to those friends. Thank you for sending <laughs> these people here. Um, Natasha. 
it's it's cool. That's yeah. cool. Thank you, Natasha. But the thing is, is that is when I said when I speak to somebody who has a couple of years of jumping or whatever, mm-hmm. I, I it grounds me in things. It helps me clarify my thoughts on things, how, what I think, because it's always subject to change. You know, mm-hmm. if it's not change, it's kind of static and dull. And that happened here for me. Um, so it's really cool. I never expected it to kind of go this way, but I was willing to let it go wherever it went. So I hope your your uh, listeners find it interesting. Fly your parachute by the seat of your pants. Be in tune with what's going on. Live your life by the seat of your pants. Be in tune with what's going on and always be willing to be open and change. I think that's some of the best things I've heard from anybody in a long time. And that's what you've said today. If I said that, I guess I made a few points that were good. <laughs> oh, man. I, <laughs> Thank I, you. I absolutely embrace it. John, I wish I could have summed it up in that quick. Uh, I, I know I can, but I just haven't figured out how to say it so quickly like you just did. <laughs> like, like you, I'm great with words. I'm also a master of bullshit. <laughs> and, and Nick will t- tell me that all the time. Uh, John, anything else you want to share with our friends, our family watching? Um, I think mainly, um, I, I presume that most of your audience is in the skydiving community. I, I just would like you all to realize that you do your behavior, what you do and don't do, they make a difference right down to, you know, just the way you greet a Wuffa when they walk onto the drop zone, you know? Did you welcome them? Were you overwhelming? Were you too technical and sophisticated? Were you cold? You know, I mean, like everything that you do makes a difference somehow. And it's, it's usually a good thing. It's usually a good thing. And, and sometimes when you're, when you're kind of feeling cranky and, you know, pissed off or whatever, like that's when I go away. I, I, I say, look, you know, you're not in a good headspace. Just take yourself away from this situation because you're not going to, you're not going to help. But there are times when you do help. And, uh, I think, I think embracing that and also the, the, uh, the community is worldwide, but it's really small and that makes it even easier to wrap your brains around the fact that you make a difference, you know, wherever you are in your skydiving, whatever you choose to do or not do, it, it really makes a difference. And it's a, it's a very unique and wonderful thing to be part of this community. And don't forget that. Don't forget that. Guys and gals, thank you for tuning in. Once again, thank you to Performance Designs for hosting us this uh, week. We've had beautiful facilities, beautiful people. Thank you to John LeBlanc and Performance Designs. Albert Berktold is actually uh, the guy in marketing who made this room and space available. Thank you, guys and gals. We will bring you a little bit more in the ads beforehand and more with the show. John, have a great day, man. I look forward to doing this again. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.